Hi, I'm Ben Affleck, a co-screenwriter and co-actor of uh, Good Will Hunting, and this is the uh, commentary, and uh, welcome to it. I'm Matt Damon, and I am co-screenwriter and co-actor. And I'm uh, Gus Van Sant, the director of Good Will Hunting. Tell us how you shot this title sequence. Oh, um... Uh... <clears throat> It was something that I had done on Malanoche a long time ago. Just uh, my grandmother had this crystal that you buy, like in a as a, as a paperweight. It was a round crystal. You look through it and you see all these um, kaleidoscopic shapes. So I had my assistant Scott Green go out and and get a bunch of crystals, and one looked like a Christmas tree, and that one's the one that worked best. We put it on the end of the lens that also had a crystal on it. It was like a <coughs> Panavision crystal lens and just uh, kept this setup. Will's apartment um, kept that that standing, and we blew up all these different uh, pages from math uh, pages of math books with math prop mathematical problems. <clears throat> really big. Some some of them were like six feet high, and uh, Matt just sat in the room, and we kind of glided around the room and pointed at different things in the room and. It was so weird making this movie that was very natural and then suddenly walking onto this thing that felt like a Terry Gilliam set with all these six-foot math equations. And, and I was just kind of standing there and going, like, what the hell is Gus doing? There was this big, like, glass orb, like, taped to the, to the lens. It looked very... There's Chris Moore. He, uh, he hung with the movie for about five years. Well, Kevin and Scott there, they, uh, who we forgot to thank at the Oscars, um, uh, Kevin read the script when Ben was doing Chasing Amy with him and Miramax had already passed on the movie and uh, a, like a, a reader had passed on it and threw, threw it in the, in the bin and uh, Kevin uh, gave it to Harvey. So. Kevin Scott brought it there and helped us get it made. You know, um, John Gordon, who got an executive producer credit with the Weinstein Brothers, is the executive who did a great job on the movie. That's a real woman who Gus just shot sitting in her porch. This is all practical locations in South Boston. Um, Lawrence was hired when we were pretty close to making the movie, as who had already produced Pulp Fiction, and Harvey, you know, wanted to bring in like a, a seasoned guy. We already had our producer was Chris, who was with us the whole time, but Lawrence had relationships with people, had experience producing big movies, and uh, Sue Armstrong was the line producer, and that covers it. Matt and Ben's credit just happened to fall right on this shot. Gus's credit happens to fall on this helicopter shot of Boston. <laughs> <laughs> I know Janet Maslin really made note of that, Gus. She like, did. She was like, "That's right." She doesn't care. Hey, oh you know. look, what a coincidence! <laughs> oh, it's the gods' point of view. Yeah, that's outside MIT, and that's there's Stellan Skarsgård, who's. Uh, we read on St. Patrick's Day. Remember, we just did that parade. Oh, yeah. We went to that parade and shot some stuff. It was so genius in the reading that we saw that guy read like one or two scenes, and all of us just flipped out for him. Yeah, he's just an excellent actor. He's just, and he's an amazing guy. We we were really lucky yeah. to get stoned. I also put an advanced Fourier system on the main hallway. Stellan made, I think, made the choice to wear scarves throughout the movie, which I really liked. <laughs> it's hard to communicate that someone's a math celebrity. Scarves ended up being the vehicle. The scarf is sort of a... <clears throat> we figured his character was 
a, a pretty big celebrity within the confines of MIT. He wasn't necessarily very big outside of MIT, but he ruled at MIT, and so he kind of had developed this insulated persona where he, you know, had a lot of psychophants, and, and the scarf was something that where he developed his main theory. He was wearing it at the time, so it's sort of a Mick Jagger. You're seeing a, a, a first here. This is actually the first time Matt ever cleaned anything. His own house, <laughs> anyone else's house. That's the L Street Tavern in South Boston, which is where we actually shot all these scenes. This woman the, is a local uh, hire, and so is the girl that uh, Kathy, who's coming up. And you know that that we really cared about having like a sense of authenticity. And Gus was really eager to cast as many local people as we could, and that really worked well. For us, Gus was literally the only director that really would be excited about um, Ben and me in those roles because. Most other directors, you know, would have to be convinced that we could do it. He, and down here, see, this is Cole Hauser with his head in his hand right there. And we met Cole doing school ties in 91. Cole made the choice to play the scene totally passed out, which I thought was pretty brave. <laughs> Cole actually gave a lot of his lines. We originally wrote more lines for him just because we wanted Cole in the movie. We knew we wanted Cole. But uh, but Cole said in every group there's 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 always a silent guy, a quiet guy that you're just aware of his presence. And it was this really kind of generous choice that he made. He gave up most of his lines to Casey. The Irish curse, by the way, in that line, a lot of people ask me what that is. That's not uh, drinking. It's, it's uh, well, it's a small uh, male organ is what it was, what the, it's referring to, which is the joke, which some people didn't quite get. That's the red line train. That's a train me and Ben grew up taking, actually, the red line. Here's me buffing a floor. You oh, keep and Gus on. decided to have, originally in the script, you never saw me solving these equations, but remember it was that Hitchcock, there's a bomb on the bus theory? Remember you, we went back and shot oh, a the, lot of that. The suspense. Well, yeah, there was, <clears throat> there was some uh, extra hallway scenes added uh, because we felt when we saw the rough cut that the audience... In the original script, the the audience doesn't realize who's solving these equations until the moment that Will gets um, caught. Stellan's, Stellan's character catches Will. And um, we thought by then it was just sort of a reveal without any anticipation of, like, you know, these this thing happening. So, so we added these scenes where um, Will is in the hallway answering these questions um, so that the audience is in on it. You know, they know who's doing it, but the but the characters in the movie don't, which is the yeah Hitchcockian sort of suspense. Oh, what's up? It's still tough. Come on! It was. Come on! Come on! That's a jackpot. It's Allison Folland from To Die For. Great, great actor. She improvised her own 
Stolen also made the choice of like <laughs> to be a womanizer. Yeah, womanizer, and that hit on basically every girl that comes into his site. So he he makes uh, overtures usually. There's Derek Bridgman, the the black kid right there behind Stalin, right there, whose whose um, idea for the title Goodwill Hunting it was. Derek acted with us in high school, and Derek wrote a novel called Goodwill Hunting, and we and Ben and I wrote you know this entire script. A script with no name. <laughs> with no name, and then we said Derek. You know, can we can we please, you know, buy this title off of you and, you know, it makes sense for our movie and we'll call our lead character Will. Up until then, he didn't have the name Will. Um, and there, um, Nate. Nate. Yeah, which was which was good. Nate Nathaniel. hunting didn't have good Nate hunting didn't work really for us. We, we really needed to go another way. It's just a sort of double entendre that's not, you know, it's not supposed to have any grand meeting. We just thought it sounded good and. Well, I think that Sean and Sean and Will are hunting for, uh, you know, solace or some sort of, you know, um, a good place or a good will. This is a scene where we kind of thought it would be funny with the reveal that they're at a Little League game and, and that, you know, just kind of getting bombed at a Little League game. Um, and they take it pretty seriously. Oh, what, Morgan? Is that going to go talk to us? Fucker. Uh, I'm gonna go for a walk. I don't want. Let's go to Kelly's. Mark, I'm not going to Kelly's just because you like the takeout, though. It's 15 minutes out of our way. What the fuck are we gonna do? We can't spare 15 minutes. Double burger. Casey's pretty much of a wild card. He's sort of a rebel. He kind of made some strong choices for his character because the character wasn't really like that before yeah. he started to not nearly to the extent that he is it's all Casey's kind of genius and just deciding that he was going to play him that way kind of come hell or high water you know what I mean and, uh, I think in a lot of ways uh, Casey took you know the first day we all kind of looked cross-eyed at Casey like oh my god he's really going for it you know as Casey put it he said I'm going deep into the whammy business you know, in other words you know if he blundered he was going to blunder big and if he didn't then 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 it would work out for him I think he he took we all kind of I don't know idolized or, or really liked this actor named Benicio del Toro who who did that in the usual suspects and, and we always had this image this romantic image of this guy who no one on the set knew what the hell the guy was doing and yet when you see the film you go oh my god this is this incredible performance and he created a character where he could almost say anything at any time he could blurt out all kinds of stuff which was great because uh he didn't have to know his name here's his uh, fight, fight sequence we had shot most of the scene pretty much all the scene in slow motion the fight's a real distinct plot device to get will in a position where you know he's vulnerable and he he needs to make a deal with the math professor to to get out of like something uh, spending time in jail. Gus also had us had us actually fight in slow motion at certain points so you so that the, so that the hands could connect with the face and stuff like that. So it was so it was an interesting way to film a fight scene. There, there was some fast motion stuff, some slow motion actually acting. And we we were also trying to say that <clears throat> these characters often are in fights like this, and they're you know it's something that's part of their daily. Life. We're also trying to show Will's a, a side to Will that is maybe a little bit out of control. He goes, he goes overboard when he's finally got the guy on the ground. <clears throat> he's got like a, um, a sort of emotional problem that way. But there's this, the sound work on it was very worked on. You know, like a, a sound uh, montage. And so we were pulling pieces from from works that were by sound montage artists and there was three or four recordings by well-known um, 
sound artists that we were kind of pulling from their recordings and dissolving the already montaged sounds together. And then stuff that we threw in as well, our own sounds that we threw in. So there was about, there's a lot of tracks, like there's a hundred tracks. And see here we meant to show, you know, again, the sort of intellectual, the, the academic stardom of Lambeau is augmented by the, you know, this issue of who is the mystery, uh, you know, math magician you see. You know, his class is even more kind of packed. You know, everybody thinks their own script is really good, you know, so we didn't want to just send it to this director that we have all this respect for and then kind of have him have to call us up and go, you know, it's really nice, guys, but uh, I'm, I'm going to go another way. So we so we were, you know, when he called us, it was like we, we, we couldn't believe it. And I was, I was on that really weird diet, and I was in... Texas, like, <laughs> sitting in a hotel room, and Ben, I get this frantic call from Ben that he was going to meet with you and stuff, so. I had the script. I was sitting in the New York hotel room, and it was, like, 4.30, and I just read about 80 pages. I hadn't even finished the script, and I was very impressed, and I got him on the phone, probably within 30 minutes or something like that. We met on uh, Sunset at the Denny's on Sunset in L.A., and, um, which, which was kind of a cool place to meet, and... Uh, I was really calling directly to the writers and saying, and the actors saying, I want to do this, which was kind of like a bad move on my part because I really should have been playing cat and mouse through the agents, through that sort of way <laughs> to get the, the, the studio interested. So Ben, like, you know, and Matt could go into a Miramax meeting saying, well, we got our director. <laughs> With this hallway, we chose this hallway for the colors, I think. They were basically like this. Initially in the script, this was the first scene where you realized that Will was the genius, but as Gus said, he, he, he set it up by putting the kind of bomb on the bus earlier on, which I think was really effective. Yeah. These are all like very bona fide math problems that <clears throat> they get progressively harder because Lambeau is trying to stump the guy, whoever it is, that's sneaking in and answering the questions. And this Here's Kaiser Soze, like that, he's gone. <laughs> the great movie G-Chat. This is a guy who plays uh, Tom. John Mighton is his is, name. He's uh, a playwright up in Toronto. Real playwright and actor and also a mathematician who helped us. And we, someone we talked to about it. He has very strong opinions about education. And in fact, later on in the movie, he improvised his own little bit about the importance of having teachers who believe in you, which he felt very strongly about. Yeah, he is a teacher also. He teaches kids. And... It looks right. He's Canadian, you can tell by the accent. Looks right. Christ shot. A little heavy-handed, guys, if you ask me. It was pretty heavy-handed. That's one of my favorite shots. Yeah, I love it's Fenway that Park shot. Fenway Park and Sitco sign. That's really... That's Boston. Well, this is outside the Bow and Arrow Bar that we went to all the time in Cambridge, so this was one of the most familiar parts of doing this movie. That was the surreal thing, is to walk up the sidewalk that we walked up a million times really all going into this families bar. were there that night. My brother had a two-week-old baby, well, one-week-old baby with him, my nephew. And, and uh, David Wheeler was there. Yeah, Wheeler was there. It's and Bobby here's Kirkero. Bobby Kirkero right there. Derek Milosavich is cut out of that scene, but he was the student. And uh, Bobby Kirkrow was somebody who uh, became kind of like, uh, he, he came Ubiquitous. And, yeah, and then stuck around the set every day. And uh, He had a line, but it didn't make it into the final cut there. He actually added a line, too. That's right. Go drink in the park. <laughs> Go drink in the park. Well, this is in Toronto, Toronto right? But <clears throat> the exterior was actually the Bow and Arrow pub in, in Cambridge. And this is meant to be the interior. It's fa fairly close. One to of those interior. movie tricks where we're walking down the street in, in Cambridge, and the next thing we're It's a month later, and we're in Canada. 
<laughs> Sounds like a nightmare, doesn't it? That is an homage. That little move that I do there is oh, an yeah, homage to, to the guy who plays the killer in Menace to Society who walks out of his front door and in a kind of exaggerated attempt to look around for would-be pursuers <laughs> does that little move. Some people will get that, I think. Minnie was somebody that uh, came in for an audition, read with Matt, and I think we were all there. Yeah, we yeah. were all there. Like I mean, she, she just... Oh, like, Hi. Ben and Matt and Chris Hi. and Lawrence and I. I think it was John the Gordon. only time everybody in the room yeah. agreed on something. Yeah. <laughs> and she, it was a good time for, uh, for everybody to be there because Minnie... Um, we were also very hungover, I remember. Oh, yeah? Yeah. We were so like an we were, hour late. We were in kind of this very strange zone of consciousness when Minnie just like poured it on and it was almost like kind of shocking like it was it was something that everybody was blown away with and uh, we uh, at that moment started to campaign Miramax for it. we actually we actually from that moment on on our next rewrite of the script wrote a woman who bears a striking resemblance to Minnie Driver, just to kind of give Miramax the message that that was the person we wanted in the role. This, this uh, bit coming up, that's the second idea there. This, the background of this shot, my brother doesn't know that he's on camera. The whole time he thought that he was actually off camera and found out <laughs> later that he was in the shot. This it didn't matter. monologue that's coming up with the, uh, you know, where Will steps in, um, we always had the idea that he would kind of one-up. So that's Mark McGovern, a friend of ours from high school in the background at the beer. Um, we, we thought would be... Um, you know, we, we never quite knew exactly what it would be about. And a friend of ours, Peter Garrison, gave us the historical context and, and some of the, you know, what the books and Lemon and the whole thing. And uh, so we, in order to thank him, we used him as the Marxian historian. He says, Mar some Marxian historian, Pete, Pete Garrison, probably. <sighs> this was a tough day to shoot, wasn't it? Matt just for couldn't remember reason, this thing. I'd been waiting for, you know, five years to say these words, you know, like, and I never had any problems with my lines because. Doing this was more like a play for us because we had it for so long. You know, it was usually, a, as I remember, a really short number of takes for us generally because we because we knew it so well. But I couldn't remember this for some reason. I just and it wasn't even the longest monologue or anything. It's just I know the NSA monologue you had wired, but this one I think it was late in the day. Sleep deprivation, yeah, maybe. But there's a part where you stumble that actually you remember looking back for a line. But I actually I think that was it right there is really effective, I think, and makes it kind of more, because, you know, you, it's just a moment of hesitation before you, like, reach back and pull out some more. Right, right. It's just one of those things where really the actor's just trying to go, fuck, what was I supposed to say? <laughs> ben and Matt both seemingly gave up their writing, you know, authority on the set, which was amazing, because, like, a, if you've seen writers on a set, they really get tweaked out about every little thing they really like they usually get kicked off the set because everything's wrong and it's just and <clears throat> these guys were like right there they were playing the parts i do remember giving some bad directions that were really off even with that um these guys would sort of go okay they would listen to you and then they'd go he's crazy <laughs> and also one of the big things is that you when you see him take apart this guy and then take apart the next two psychiatrists, it's really meant to set up Sean's entrance. So hopefully the audience is really expecting, you know, a, a, quite a confrontation. 
Now, this is my brother's ad lib here. Right here, but but there's an there's an even better one that he it's an homage to, to Marlon Brando coming up where Casey Ponce this this ad lib is just Casey being a genius and then when he says I swallowed a bug, that's a, that's an homage to Hearts of Darkness when Brando swallows a bug and says you know cuts the take. Here it is. I swallowed a bug. <laughs> And no, look at Matt had to laugh. He couldn't hold it. I couldn't hold it in. I mean, <laughs> Casey just just had. Was it going. in the movie? Was it in Apocalypse Now? No, it, well, no, it wasn't in Apocalypse Now. It was in, it was in oh, Hearts of Darkness, and, and when he, he says he has no more dialogue for today, <laughs> and he just gets up and walks away. Casey tried some stuff from the Island of Doctor Moreau. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. That's right. He did Moreau lines. And Casey. Gus is the only director brave enough to just be like, "Well, I don't really know what he's talking about, but I liked it. I'll leave it in." <laughs> <laughs> no, but he, it was good. It was really because he said uh, one girl said I was uh, I was said I had a receipt and hairline and was a few pounds overweight. overweight yeah. and Billy told the heavyset girl to go fuck us up. <laughs> I swallowed a bug. <laughs> when you think about it, it's as arbitrary as drinking coffee. Uh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, right then. Here we cut again back outside to Cambridge, which yeah, is this, this is, is right outside Harvard Square. This is all our family and friends. We're about we're right off camera. Yeah, this was so the this night was where everybody came to watch. Yeah. Baskin Robbins, which has been that that corner forever since we grew up there. You like and this was really late at night. We were exhausted. Yeah, it was probably four yeah. in the morning. Well, I got a number. How do you like them apples? <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of a... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> the last take of that, we were so... Like, at a loss for... I love these shots. For trying to... This is the bridge from Cambridge to Boston. And this was really shot, you know, of us going home, trying to pass this train, trying to time the drive so that we would catch the train was more of a struggle. This is your guys' first day, and the costumes <clears throat> were really uh, not satisfactory, so everybody's really bummed out because we just at four in the morning had decided, <clears throat> uh, the guys had decided that these costumes were complete. Like they were not. <laughs> I was hoping you were well, not the ones that are in the movie, but no, the, no. but the ones. We had no, an agreement about but like that's the scene yeah. we shot right after that discussion, yeah, yeah. which is, I mean, I think it was a totally bona fide like discussion and complaint and a great complaint because like look what we have, you know, like yeah. to work on it harder was a really good thing. Different There's kind. a very <clears throat> specific uh, kind of dress code, uh, if you will, in South Boston, at uh, <clears throat> that 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 we really wanted to adhere to. Eventually, we came to the kind of conclusion that Ben should kind of represent that, and, and so his costumes are very. Ben went literally to a mall and bought his uh, bought his clothes based on how everybody, uh, how, how the kids, a lot of kids in South Boston are dressing, and uh, and we took more liberty with my kind of costumes because I'm kind of in between these things. But Beatrix Pastor, who's the costumer, worked really hard on trying to kind of differentiate between everybody. I mean, she had all these kind of different. I don't. I, I, cultures to kind of represent you know with her and there it was it wasn't always easy working we did have very particular opinions and i think sometimes it would surprise people like all of a sudden we really cared about like a particular kind of sweatshirt we, we should be wearing and people were like these guys are so easy and mellow and then all of a sudden you know we would 
you know, have really strong feelings, but there were things that we really, really cared about, like certain things in Boston, a certain look, because we really thought that that had never been done well in a movie before, or accurately to our experience, and that was something, the authenticity of that area and that neighborhood was something we really cared about. Whereby a defendant can't claim self-defense against an agent of the government if that act is deemed to There was this guy named Jerry Specka who was our high school acting teacher who had a tremendous kind of impact on both of us, and he really taught... Uh, a work ethic more than anything that um, and a lot of people you know out of that high school um, Ben and me and Casey and uh, Max Casella who's um, made a, um, a great career for himself and he's on Broadway now and people came out of that department even though it wasn't like kind of a conservatory program this is the actual um, South Boston courthouse that's uh, Jimmy Flynn who's a teamster who is a uh, Who's, who plays the judge. Anybody who's shot a movie in Boston pretty much will know who Jimmy is because, uh, you know, he's real well-known in Boston, a really nice guy, and he's uh, and here he is up uh, up here. And what we had Jimmy do was just say stuff to me that had been said to him before. <laughs> so. He's really got the per He's got an incredible accent. It sounds just so right. And he's great. He's got a, like, real kind of presence, and he lends a real feeling of authenticity. That reaction always bothered me. It always felt... Over what is the that? top? I don't know because it's when the, the mention of like being an orphan and it's like I look away. It's from that scene though. It's in sync. It's not out of sync. It's Are not you, from really? another place. No. I did that. I mean, yeah, you did that. But it but it might have been not the same take. I think Pietro might have rooked you into thinking so. <laughs> <laughs> Possible. Ale. Uh, Skyler. Yep. Hey, uh, it's Will. Who? It's Will. You know the really. Funny, good-looking guy you met at the bar the other night? I don't recall meeting anyone who matches that description. I think I'd remember. Oh, all right, you got me. It's the ugly of Here comes uh, Harmony Corinne uh, walking down the hallway. Harmony stopped by in Toronto. The voice of a generation, Harmony Corinne, the voice of independent cinema in America. Asking if I want a piece of his ass. Yeah, look, I was wondering... Yo, what's up, baby? What's up? Hold on one second. You hey. What's up, baby? You want some of my ass? Herbert, I remember you from Juvie. How you doing? I was there... Um, pretty much all the time, every day, just kind of hanging out, just because I wanted to watch it uh, be filmed, you know, and occasionally I would go and, like, try to figure something out or, you know, do some research or try to find out another, you know, way to do something. But mostly it was just uh, it was just fun to be around and watch and sort of offer myself as, as needed. This guy, this, this guard just really would force me around, so I, so I kind of... That's an improv thing. Said, it really gets a big laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just made that up because he was really. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, There's a moment coming up that I thought was interesting uh, that uh, Stalin wanted. Uh, he 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 said, "You never see Stalin be afraid of me," uh, and he th said he thought coming from these different worlds there would be a little bit of a flinch. So when I reached for my cigarettes, watched Stalin flinch, it was just a little nuance that he wanted to throw in there. Um, but see, right mm -hmm. there, um, and and. You know, that's the kind of thing that... He still kind of tries to re re keep his composure, which I really like. It's not obvious. He would go really far. Yeah. And you'd go like, whoa. You know, like, he would just go for it. It was surprising how far he would go. If you, in a particular suggestion, he would really... <clears throat> he would, you know, lose himself very quickly in that direction. I just want to say something. It's one of the things I really like that Matt did in this movie, is, it, it, which is, I think, you know, is let himself really laugh. You know what I mean? If something was funny or if something was humorous that was going on in the scene, that part was about the therapy, which kind of worked. But there's a couple of times, more so in the scenes with Robin, where it's real laughter, you know, which is really hard to do. And if you're having kind of fun in a scene, I always think it's nice to let it, let it come through. 
And it's kind of unexpected. It's the real jailhouse confrontation, and there he is laughing about the therapy. This scene we wanted to, uh, <clears throat> we really were trying to set up the fact that at one point Will, that, that, that Will is excited about doing the math, that, he, that there is something and that he can't help, that he really does enjoy. And it's a way in which this professor can relate to him that, no one, that he's never really related to anybody. So in order to give their relationship a place to go, and we always felt that Stellan's character was really kind of poorly written, um, and we needed a, an actor to kind of flesh it out. As well as, as well. I as always wanted to cut this out this part right here. Yeah, this was a controversy this between us and Gus. Stellan would ju- usually, uh, I think in most of the takes, he would put his arm around Will and he would like tap his his arm. And so uh, <clears throat> Ben and Matt both felt when they saw the rough cut that this is something that Will wouldn't really stand for. They didn't, you know. I always just thought it was too space. early to have that degree of congeniality and. But you know. But at the same so time, the problem it. was we needed congeniality to show t- for the relationship to have somewhere to go. Yeah, we decided to make a scene out of just two people not talking, but kind of relating through the board, and that was what. The- <laughs> I read your book, and uh, and and Mike was having. Oh, this is this just is Gus's one. genius yeah. idea to cast George. Dude, this 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 particular psychiatrist was always a little bit <clears throat> difficult to kind of get. You, you know, I I totally was like into these the the. Um, first two psychiatrists there was a little bit of a discussion of like do we need these first two psychiatrists from Miramax and from Lawrence um, of like is it a necessary step to go through to show that he he rebels against these first two guys by the time he gets to Robin we, th- we always thought it was like first of all a spirit of kind of fun and set up Sean and you know it's a, it sets up Robin like so you're expecting something when Robin comes into the you know there's something something's gonna happen right and this guy because he was apparently a closeted, or somehow Will is is insulting him in a way that makes him leave. He's um, exposing him for essentially kind of right having closeted gay affairs while he keeps a marriage yeah. with a woman. And yeah, he's looking at him funny. So, so we had to c- cast it in a, a way that wasn't um, too obvious, which was it wasn't too difficult for me to imagine, but I think it was difficult for like. Um, some people in, in our group. I think of, some people were really scared of this scene and just yeah. really freaked out. And by I think it. one of the things that George Plimpton was sort of, to me, the prototype. And I think we talked about him and during those writing meetings. And then eventually we got him to do it, which was great. Which was great. And he, and he added the line, no more ballyhoo. <laughs> he really knew. I mean, George really, like. He got the he character. He got the character yeah. so totally. This is, Stalin improvised this thing about how. It, Found a girl in the hallway like of the a, University of Toronto. And just was like, like sit symphony. here. Yeah, he started talking about it's like that's totally Stellan's suggestion to have this girl sit there, and um, he when he suggested it to me, I thought, yeah, come on, <laughs> it was out of the bounds. Sometimes, very rarely, very rarely, did the, the actor's suggestions go out of the bounds of like what you know. It's, I usually into trying anything, but I figured, well, we can change it if it's not working. That raving loony in there, an absolute lunatic he is. Okay, you're in your bed, Will. Now, how old are you? Seven. This is Francesca. Well-known artist. Something's in my room. He did all the paintings for, also he didn't, his other experience in movies, he did all the paintings for Great Expectations. This this scene I always looked forward to doing, and I never felt I nailed it on the day, but I felt like uh, Gus and Pietro really helped me out editing because I think he cut out some stuff here. Well, there was a whole... uh, earlier scene where you're hypnotized and you're like standing there oh right right that's right which uh 
we, you know, shortened. So there's this one part where he actually hypnotizes him before he's speaking to him in his dream. Wait, this is another thing that we fought over in development. People saying it's unnecessary, and you know, we wanted right. to keep it in there, but it was it was difficult. Something's happened in the first session that makes Lambo kind of want to sit in on the second session. No, he's got to feel like he's got, you know. I think it got cut out. We we had a we had a uh, a scene where I asked, right, if uh, if you would please sit in with me, and it's just yeah. Will's way. Will That's just right. wants an audience because yeah. he wants to, set him wants to and screw say, around yeah. with these guys, and and it's not as fun to screw around with somebody when there's no one there to to see what you're doing. So so Will says, you know, I'll please, and 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 he kind of acted like, well. You know, I, it would really be helpful for me if you would come sit in. So it, it is totally against kind of a therapeutic law, um, and it is a stretch. But uh, but we, we to kind of for dramatic. The whole picture is a stretch. Let's face it. <laughs> we like working for Miramax because you basically have this person, Harvey Weinstein, who's who's you know the man in charge. And if you can convince Harvey, then you're you're hopefully on your way. There was also I think that you guys wanted to like work on the script too. Like when we worked in Memphis. Yeah, but we wanted to work with you. Yeah, we wanted to work with you and do your version of it, and you know. But were there things that also you guys wanted to do yourselves that you had your own notes? Yeah, no. Well, we we always felt. Remember that whole Act Two climax question, and we were trying to figure that out. And there was one draft we went through where Ben actually got killed, and you know, I mean, which was my idea, which was probably like huge, hugely bad idea. But we did it because it was your idea. In the end of the day, you know, it was kind of interesting. It was a good. And then we, we really liked it. And then we were kind of like, oh. And then we read it and we went, oh, my God, what have we done? <laughs> because uh, <clears throat> trust, is, uh, trust is life. Wow. It's very deep. Thank you, Vinny. This is one moment where Robin did a little bit of his kind of, you know, Robinism. Since, you know, he's so good at standing up in front of a class and being interesting and entertaining. We tried to write that, but couldn't write it, you know. As, as comfortably and as well as Robin could just stand up in front of a group and, you know, be interesting. But we also wanted a little bit of a sense that, you know, he was struggling, you know, which, which you get with his interplay with the students. We also wanted this to be a little bit embarrassing for his old colleague, who's this really renowned professor, to show up and watch him kind of... Making, like, sex jokes making, to keep an audience, like, entertained in a remedial course. And it's, just, it's, it's a little bit kind of like a mirror of their whole relationship. Robin doesn't want to feel embarrassed by, by this guy. And, uh, but he knows what Stalin's values are and knows that Stalin will feel embarrassed for him, and that's sort of the crux of their conflict. So Robin also... Um, he is one of the sweetest, most sensitive, kind of thoughtful guys I've ever come across. You know, it's, he's really remarkable. When he came to Boston for a rehearsal, I think that he had already... He sort of assumed this uh, personality, which I'm not sure he's always sort of it was part of him which was very down you know and very uh actually it's the robin that i knew from before there it was just sort of a regular guy he wasn't like mr stand-up and tell a joke um and i thought that when we were doing the film that there would be a lot more of that and whenever we were doing a scene um robins would say okay we'll do a couple more like this and then i'll really let it go and he would say use these terms like let it go or play around with it and i thought oh boy you know, we get to hear like some stand, and it would never, it would never come out. And then I go and I'd say, "Was that the one where you're letting it go?" And he'd go, "Yeah, yeah, boss. Is, is, was that not good?" And I go, "No, that was that was great. That was really great." And then we'd move on, and I would never really uh, uh, encourage him to go beyond 
this, you know, I, I never said no, but Robin, I thought you were going to really let it go. Like, you know, like good morning Vietnam, like let it go, baby, that kind of thing. Um, because I thought maybe that would be the wrong thing to point him towards because it was really working the way he was doing it. Um, it was just sort of for my own amusement that I wanted to. Robin well, and he would do it between takes too. That's I mean, true. He would. He 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 kept the crew just. My in favorite stitches. thing was uh, in Ro in his office and Sean's office when we were getting the focus. And I'm really sorry we didn't film these. When we were we would we would re rehearse the scene for blocking, and then the crew would have to come in and try and get their moves down because the camera was usually filming the whole scene in one take, a five minute scene. So there are all these marks that everybody would have to achieve. And Robin and Matt didn't want to necessarily be doing the lines because they couldn't, because they'd have to break after each sentence pretty much to sort of pose for the focus. And um, so they started to do their characters in, in other characters. Like uh, Robin would be Godzilla and Matt would be Janet Reno. And they would play the scene as Sean and Will, except these other characters. And it was incredible. It was like to be being Janet Reno the way Will Ferrell's Janet Reno, not... <laughs> and it was very, it was, it was hilarious. It was, those are the funny, funniest moments, at least as I remember with Robin. Just being around Robin, it's he had this infectious, you know. I mean, it makes you want to make jokes and have a good time. Um, and then he's got this other side to him, which just when he focuses, which is just incredibly intense and incredibly um, just respectful of the role. You never got the feeling that he was phoning it in. You got the feeling this guy was just extraordinarily disciplined, and it was like, man, what makes a guy who has everything basically be that disciplined after all this time? And it's just this, his own kind of value system, I think. You know, he's, he he's understands. Really he's like, really smart, and he understands the, the thing, and, you know, he does that really well. But there's also a side of Robin that really, I think, understands this guy, you know. I mean, there's a cliche about comedians, you know, and... And, and, you know, kind of having a lot of stuff underneath that. And uh, Robin sort of showed the other side of him, which was really, really effective. I, he, you know, he, I, I think Robin, you know, knew from the beginning that it, this was, it's not like a super comedy movie. You know what I mean? There's a lot of heavy stuff. It was, you know, there's that monologue that we haven't come to yet. But, you know, so he, he would throw in occasional stuff like You're the Shepherd and stuff that really works. But uh, it was, it, you know, it was nothing that I was ever like. He was, he was super... Um controlled I think uh, and, he, and it sort of came from him he wanted he he had an idea of how he wanted to play the character which was in keeping with I think what we were expecting we wanted to show kind of these two characters who were both inert who kind of bump into each other and and they go off and uh, with a new energy and zest for life because of their interaction together and they're very you know they they're parallels of one another um, so that was essentially the dynamic that that we tried to set up like they both help one another engage in life, you know. Um, in fact, we took a lot of criticism for that. Really, the, we always thought that, you know, movies are supposed to work that way. And uh, some people said, "Oh, this is too neat. It's too pat. He helps him. He helps him." It's, it's one of those things where there's a whole school of thought that says, you know, this is the way it's sort of supposed to be. And then other people are saying, "Well, this is too easy. This is too manufactured." But Ben and I both had, you know, teachers who, who, mentor figures who, who really gave us a lot and who and who we found you know 10 years later after high school really feel like you know remembered us as students and said you know and, and both our parents are teachers and they say you know you really do remember certain students and they and they you know they, they can make you know your you know that that relationship is you know um is sym symbiotic this is always the scene that never really changed that no matter what we went through it's centered around the, this idea 
is I just reacted the most strongly to this and thought it was the most important thing and b building the story essentially around one scene. Yeah, when this plays in, with an audience, it's always like, if I ever watch the movie, I watch it right up until this, uh, the point where Robin says, you know, be here Thursday, 4 o'clock, the end of this scene, and then it's like, then I walk I leave too because I'm not in it for 25 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's sort of like where you want your movie to, you want to have the scene in your movie, and this is like the, the strongest, uh, you know, kind of point in, in a, in a, the strongest version of that sort of grabber for me in any, any film that I've made. And it's so, like, right there, and it has a, like, this great um, finale. You ever heard the saying, any port in the storm? Yeah. Yeah, maybe that means you. This painting was really hard. I, I think that, in my mind, it was really different. It was like an oil painting that was kind of blurry. And uh, it, we, it was, everything was so around this image that, that I was really nervous, and I finally just chose this painting as a way to go. I don't think it was, it wasn't the painting I had in my head reading. This, this we, we had a lot of discussion about when he says, watch your mouth, that's the point where Will knows that he's got that Will, can provoke him. Right there, Will knows he's not supposed to do anything else. And Gus made this interesting choice there, looking into the light. So hey, I'm making the decision right there. The light. Boom, yeah, I think I'm going to go after him. So I go after him, and this is something that you haven't seen in many Robin Williams movies. When he, what happened? This, this side of him. I love how he takes his glasses off. Yeah, he just takes because he's ready to go. Boom, well, that's it. You're done. <laughs> yeah. And the look on my face, I mean, I am in some pain. I mean, at this point, he's been grabbing me. That's, that's no stage combat. That's yeah. <laughs> that's not, you know... I'm really doing the pressing. <laughs> and I think in this scene you can see my neck right there. Yeah, it's already it's got makeup on it. It's already bleeding because we've Robin's done it a few times. 50 times. Robin really got uh upset for for this moment where he grabs me. He really I don't know what he was doing. I don't know what he was thinking about. Business. Yeah. But he couldn't stop grabbing me really hard. Okay. He tries to be flip coming out, and he's gentleman, but he's a little shaken. And then he's here shaking. we wanted to set up like you know, you're, you know, our, our hero's gonna be back. You know, our hero mean? has the resilience. Our hero's from South Boston. Our hero's not gonna take any crap from this kid, and you know. I I, I just want to say I really like this pushing it on the picture there. I always thought that was a really. Good idea. Yeah, on a big screen. Yeah. You finally see it. You haven't seen it yet. It and you finally see this picture. And then it's into his like Dirty his dude. life. I like that too. It's not it's not too heavy handed, but it also tells you, you know, this is how that man that internal, you know, life that's represented by the pictures manifests itself in Sean's, you know, physical world. And we never, like, I like the fact that he drinks, and he drinks kind of heavily, and he's unhappy, but it's not, it's it's not the thing the where he ends up in the 12-step like, program, yeah, you know? It's, he's not necessarily an alcoholic. He's just, you know, a heavy drinker who, uh, you know, is really unhappy and has lost his wife and is finding refuge in the bottle. And he still wears his ring. This is what happens. There's a very serious danger 
putting actors in a room with too many props. <laughs> yeah. This is what you end up with. Is you, it? You end, a yeah. scene about props. A scene about <clears throat> this, this is the last. This is like scene. almost mocking a scene about props. <laughs> How many Somehow props? This, can we put? this is the last night we shot, I think, in yeah. Canada, right? Oh, and then we went to Boston. And we went to Boston to do the fight and oh, pickups and driving away. This is kind of the official last scene with the. Too many props, too many props, too many props. <laughs> That's actually funny. Minnie's bring me another Mai Tai. That always makes me laugh. I, I really like that. It's an improvisation. I think it really developed well. Everybody thinks this is really like a breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> but we had. I think it's the Breakfast Club, but that's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> this is where, you know, we're just trying to establish an ease. Uh, what we're trying to establish is that these two guys, that, that this kid really meets this woman who's just incredible and just who, who he can't, you know, who just really gets to him um, and, uh, and challenges him, and he's never had that. So, um, and it's hard to do in a short amount of time. So you really need a, an actor who was Minnie who could who could flesh that out, you know. So she's based on this, uh, um, my college sweetheart. Uh, so she's a lot of the things she says were actually said certain times, or kind of amalgams of different people and stuff. So Minnie brought a lot. She she you know really fleshed it out. Again, it was like what we did with Stalin. I mean, the character felt a lot like a device, and and we really needed actors who who were adept at kind of. Flip making somebody three dimensional, and and she and she was really good at that, and she'd done it before, and felt like you know she'd kind of created full characters out of smaller roles. And this scene, I always like. This is at the Tasty in Harvard Square, which is now, now gone, yeah, gone. But it's a very famous, famous old restaurant. I st I started writing this as a uh, <clears throat> I was in a I was in a, a, a playwriting class at Harvard and uh, he was a terrific terrific teacher his name is Anthony Kubiak I think the biggest thing that I took away from that class was an ability to uh, to just kind of listen uh, with 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 created full characters out of smaller roles well, this coming up of course is the scene that we always initially you know we didn't think anyone would give us money and we figured the only way to get the movie made was to get a name who was big enough to play Sean that they would finance the movie with us in it. So we wanted to, you know, we knew we had to write them their, uh, their star moment, their Oscar moment, you know, like the moment where the actor feels like he really gets to shine. We didn't really think it would turn into an actual Oscar <laughs> We didn't moment, think Robin but, Williams uh, would do it. We didn't, certainly didn't think Robin would do it. We really wanted him to wear a Boston Red Sox hat in this scene. We got in a big fight with the Red Sox at the time about uh, using, the, uh, using their logo. And uh, eventually they reneged. I think they reneged the day after we shot this scene. So we just missed having a, uh, a Red Sox hat here. But uh, Robin, Robin was letter perfect. Uh, for the most part, he, he goes a, a little astray. He adds some things. Uh, like once more under the breach is a kind of a Shakespearean thing. That and does he, that encapsulate you? And does Robin's that encapsulate you? Other, other than that, it's pretty it's verbatim, which is you know pretty unusual for this movie. Everyone played around a little bit. But we did a lot of takes of this. I remember this is beautiful day and uh, well, probably the nicest day in Boston. When it we was the there. nicest day we had in the whole movie. I mean, it really was not yeah, yeah. really we lucked out. Yeah, there were a bunch of different takes, but we settled on just you know doing about three or four shots, um, <clears throat> starting with Will, then going to uh, Sean and staying on Sean pretty much to the end. And then, like, the, the first half on was, was, was Sean's angle, and then what Sean was saying 
the way it affected Will, the, the second shot was like totally on Will and didn't move off of him. So it was like simplified. <clears throat> I think also as a young actor, it helped me uh, writing the scene because <clears throat> I always knew that Will wasn't going to do too much in this scene except listen. And um, I think a lot of times, at least the, my, my, I, as a young actor, I end up trying to actively listen, you know, and which is just a blunder. And, uh, and because we wrote it, um, I was more comfortable just sitting and uh, not overdoing it here. It's not a traditional therapeutic, you know, relationship. The it's point not, when he grabs him by the neck, the, the whole, the patient, you know, the therapist-patient relationship is basically over at that point. It's been compromised. So from this point on, it's more of a father-son relationship. He grabs him by the neck. He's, it's not necessarily, okay, now let's talk about your childhood. Sean's a guy who's, like, willing to sort of throw out the textbook rules, recognizes what's kind of necessary in dealing with this kid, the personality type of which he intimately understands. And so, you know, he takes the approach which, while unconventional and something that Lambeau can't understand, is the most effective approach to dealing with Will and obviously the one which proves to be successful. Robin probably did this monologue about 30 times and that day. He, he, he was cooking. He was ready. Through cancer. And you wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in a hospital room for two months, holding her hand because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss, because it only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself. And there's the cut when he starts to talk about me. Unless you talk about you, and then it sort of stays on the shot, pretty much, except for some dialogue edits that we had to cut out. Be improvisational, and then, you know, out of improvs, you'd get a, a line or an idea, or we'd talk it out, come up with an idea. Here, okay. You know, this the scene where, you know, um, Sean really tells Will about life. Well, he could say this or he could say that. And you say it out loud and you talk it out through. And, you know, obviously you throw out a lot of stuff. But out of that, oftentimes, sort of sideways, something emerges that's really good that you wouldn't have, you know, had the foresight to write. You know, it's not very linear, but it ends up being, like, the better stuff, you know. Uh, the different actors that we, that we thought of while we were writing it were from Robert De Niro to Duval to... Um, Ed Harris, actually, for a, a, a lot of it. Um, Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman, yeah, somebody that a lot that of it. Uh, just actors that we really admire, you know. Um, people that we really would, the kind of dream people to work with, you know. And the Lambo mo is kind of the model, on the, you know, in, in a way we use like Ben Kingsley in Searching for Bobby Fischer, kind of, or William Goldman, one of the things he said to us that we had kind of already been doing, but it reinforced it was like that he always uses an actor as a model when he writes, like in his voice. In other words, he writes for some actor that he really likes, so it gives him a kind of voice to write with. And it is somewhat, you know, helpful to do that. And obviously when we got Robin, it was like, you know, it was like one of these people that we were writing for actually coming true. We couldn't believe it. This getting up and walking away was always inspired for that moment and in, in actually in the film Hoosiers when, when Gene Hackman says, I don't care whether you play or not, and Jimmy Chipwood's hit about 11 push shots in a row and then he misses one. He back rims one because Hackman walks away from him. So we always kind of had, I don't care whether you... Here you have your Dunkin' Donuts plug. Once again. I think we could make a living being the time to make the donuts, guys, if nothing else works out. That's a real house in South Boston. That's you know, it's, it's, two, it's two doors corner. away from the house that uh, Robin, Robin lives in in the uh, in the movie, right around the corner. 
This is meant, of course, to like show the routinization of their lives, and you know, so that the audience has a kind of subconscious expectation for when I walk up at the end. And here we cut to Toronto. This is fun. We were throwing cinder blocks, and that first shot from down below. That was my first Everyone station. was hiding. <laughs> we were throwing them at the it camera. It was close. Yeah, it was the, close to the camera. This is to show that uh, Sean's had an impact on him, and he, he, he. He, he now he, feels unsettled, and he's kind of. He's starting to recognize his own difficulties, which makes him confront the issues he has with the other That bravado's gone. Professor Valenti, are you calling me again? Freak. You know, the kid who kind of makes a joke that no one else really laughs at, you know? <laughs> It's a beer can whipped off his head. This is where we did, we looped lines for TV over swear words, and Casey just in the original scene said, keep fucking with me, watch what happens. But in the TV loop, he said, keep antagonizing me. And Gus liked that so much that he, he kept it in the actual movie. This, this scene was, was, was here to, to show <clears throat> that uh, there's a clock behind Will. Will's counting the seconds here in his head. Um, just to kind of try and regain command of this uh, relationship that you know he's been pretty much broken down by this guy. He's trying to act like he's not bothered by it, but so he decides to just not talk. But Sean decides to wait him out because he knows he knows that he won't cave first, and um, and if he does it, it'll be a sign of weakness. So he he decides to uh, to wait the kid out. What do you mean it didn't talk? You were in there for an hour. I just sat there counting the seconds until the session was over. Pretty impressive, actually. Why would he do that? To prove to me he doesn't have to talk to me if he doesn't want to. What is this, some kind of staring contest between two kids from the old neighborhood? Yeah, it is. And I can't talk first. You know your theory, Alexander. This scene was a product of, like, some development people's notes saying like they didn't understand like that we didn't see enough of them doing math together what the impact was of his math so he went and spoke with a bunch of mathematicians and talked about like what would be a kind of you know you know the impact that some a new mind has in a particular field of study and you know so here we're showing that he's actually you know refined a, an older mathematician's theory and improved superseded i think was the word that's the word right that they But the math scenes, are like they, there were three different ones that we put in, so that we developed a just a progression, so that it was not just Lambo and uh, Will doing math, which one of them was cut out, I think. But but that there was a, there were some other things that went on too. Lambo brought in colleagues, and a lot of times with Robin, it was like six to seven takes, but with Matt, it was two, usually. Probably yeah. And with Ben, it was like two or three. It sort of depends on when when the characters are really are happy with their own work, you know. And uh, you know, it varies. I'll I'll get out if it's technically okay. I'll get out right away. You know, I'll do two takes. Robin really likes to experiment. Keep trying. Yeah. Keep trying. He'd be he'd still be there if if people were willing <laughs> to do it. He'd still be up in Toronto trying to refine this little moment right here. I mean, he just wants right. to go forever, but he has if more you don't energy. Want, a lot of that work had been done, too, but, but in terms of me and Ben, we, we, since we'd written it, we'd, we'd tried all these different things over the years, so we kind of, we, we kind of knew what we wanted to do. So it was a, it, you know, it, it was like, you know, if, if, if Gus was happy and we were happy, we just kind of said, well, I guess we got it. 
much better if I tell this you. This scene I listened to on the headsets, and, and I, I mean, uh, there's an ex part, of, part of the thing where they kind of laugh, and it, it, it just, I thought it worked really well. They, Matt and Robin had a really kind of natural ease with one another that, uh, that I was really hoping they would have, because if they didn't, you know, you'd lose a kind of an element of the movie, but they just had a... Forced naturalism is kind of the worst thing to sit through, and I've, I've certainly subjected audiences to it before, and I'm sure I will again, but... In, in this situation, Robin really was making me laugh, and and in this in this scene, um, he he went on this whole ad lib about his wife farting, and none of that was in the, the original script. And for some reason, um, we we just you know we kind of had the giggles or whatever, and and you actually hear Robin laugh in a way that I just guarantee you've never heard yeah. him laugh. And it's his true laugh. It, it's his real laugh, and he goes ah, like that. <laughs> it's because the ad lib is you know my wife used to fart in her sleep. And then at, at one point, it's not in the movie, he says, they started laughing, and he said, I used to have to wake up and light a match. And then Matt said, is that how she died? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> literally, I mean, that's what they're laughing at, like, uproariously. It had me rolling off. I was trying to be right, quiet. Right here. I just, you can see that they start to really... Like, he's like, right there. There it is, <laughs> right there. And see, see, this is real true. Like, we're, just, we're just losing it. We just think the take's no good, you know, but we're just laughing. <laughs> see, that, that's the see now I go out of focus here because I lean forward just because I, at, at some point I'm just laughing so hard that I just... It's just also the camera. <laughs> <There it is. laughs> the camera's going up and down because Johnny is laughing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and Johnny, the cameraman, yeah, is, is laughing. I just kept rolling. It was Robin who like screwed everything up and said cut, but you know we kept rolling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. He said we didn't, we'd no, no, had we'd had enough by then. I mean, it wasn't a screw up. But um, at a certain point, we were so far afield. We went on this riff about farting that just got so insane that. Uh, I think we, 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 we were doing ourselves a disservice by the end of the day. but It's just such the heavy scene and, you know, the wife and what she used to do. And then Robin's thing about just farting was so absurd and, like, out of the context that it just, I think, struck everybody as really funny. And, but a really kind of nice, unexpected way to break the ice, you know. It's, it's really kind of an organic, you know, he made a choice that act does the same thing in real life as it would kind of do in the scene, which always works really well. I'd give it a shot. You certainly won't learn from an old fucker like me. Even if I did know, I wouldn't tell a piss ant like you. <laughs> now, why not? You told me every other fucking thing. <laughs> and one of the things that this hope to like that people take out of this, and if there's this like a kind of zeitgeist within the business, is that you know you don't need to spend a fortune to make a movie that people want to see. That's something I really believe in. That we've always talked about. Like, if, you know, if you try to make a good movie, there's a lot of movies that we like that don't have set pieces or explosions or that just where everybody didn't make a fortune it doesn't need to cost that much money it doesn't need to be to sp you don't have to spend like you know break a ship in two pieces to get people to come in and see it or have have big monsters or whatever it is you know um hopefully you know and it's not a billion dollars but it's enough everybody made money and you know it's something we're proud of so like i do hope that like and i sense not just from this movie but just in a larger way with like kind of the emergence of independent film that there is like a movement towards, you know, being willing to take chances on other kinds of movies. And uh, I don't see why we would need more money than this, you know, unless we wrote, you know, some... I mean, maybe someday we'll write some, yeah, big action movie or something, but I don't think that that that's probably any time in the near future. Yeah. I like this movie. I like movies like this, yeah. we, you know. Yeah, I mean, we could have we written anything, you know. We, we just kind of got drawn to write this for some reason. And we don't know too much about lizards or uh, rocket ships or... You know, we know very little about aliens. 
So we like to stick to stuff we're semi-qualified for anyway. Hello. Hey. Where have you been? I'm sorry, I've been like, I've been really busy and, <clears throat> but. Um, Me too. Yeah. I've, I thought you'd call. Yeah, um. I mean, we had a really good time. I had a really good time too. I mean, I just. I now it's sort of like the Catch-22. We did this so that we could get, we wrote this so that we could help our acting careers. We've done that. Now we're busy with our acting careers and we don't have enough time to do the writing that we want to do. But, you know, we're doing it. And if it took us five years to get uh, this made, I guarantee you it'll be less time before yeah, the next one. That's the one good thing. Ever. Just can't right now. Here's the thing where one of the obstacles was like, the idea was that he just flashes on her equation and then goes and can do it from, from memory of her organic chemistry you know, problem set. It was always a, a sort of struggle as to how, how, to the extent to which he would have to look at it and could he really do it that quickly. And we had him playing chess and doing it. That was Harvey Weinstein's only note about the script was that he, Will couldn't play chess and do the chemistry. That was too much. He was like, other than that, I love the movie, but he can't do both at once. One of the weird things like that that people, you know, that stand out to people. What are you doing here? I couldn't wait till tomorrow. Where the fuck did you get this? I had to sleep with someone in your class. Oh, I hope it was someone with the open toe sandals and not really bad breath. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, let's go have some fun. No, I, I've got to learn this. Well, you're not going to the surgery tomorrow, are you? No. Let's go. I love this shot of the dogs, uh... Running in slow motion, that really is Wonderland, the racetrack, dog track in Revere, Massachusetts. It's one of the things we had written in from very early on, and it was pretty cool. Now, this scene, Minnie actually put a bet on a dog, and Gus filmed her, and she won. So that made it in the movie because she actually won money right there. So that reaction is just, you know, as real as she can get because that's, because that's, that's, she won. So I can't believe I won. <laughs> I can't believe I won. <laughs> Look at you, you're so happy. You know, we started betting just, I think, for fun, but I realized it was, it was, uh, it's going to be really good. Not only was I betting, but these guys were betting. It was good. That yeah, it was Minnie's first bet at a dog track, and she just bet by the name of the dog. She just bet on the name, you know, and, 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 and she won, so. For how many? Bob, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. Why? Go on. What, five? Seven? Eight? How many? I have twelve big brothers. This scene we wanted to set up that he's that he's not <clears throat> he's not completely forthright. Obviously with this whole kind of thing about his brothers, he, he, he just he he can't he's very guarded, um, and he's kind of unable to have a real a real deep relationship with somebody because he's afraid of uh, kind of showing uh, who he really is, I guess. Timmy, Tommy, Joey, Robbie, Johnny, and Brian. Willie. Willie? Yeah. Will. Wow. Do you still see all of them? Yeah, well, they all live in Southie. I'm, I'm living with three of them right now. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, I'd like to meet them. Yeah, we'll do that. Oh, you know, I read your book last night. Oh, so you're the one. This is a cool idea that Gus had to start it overhead to give you some perspective. It's like challenging trying to take the same location and keep making each scene an interesting way to look at it. It looks kind of like a baseball diamond too. The way and he'll come back to it when it's, come back to that shot when they're doing running around the bases. Which When he hits the home run. But uh, we had that with, we had a different setup for each, 
four different uh, sessions. One was high, one was from the side, one was from the other side, and we the other ones were cut out, but the high shot remained. Using it as an establishing shot also makes it seem less incongruous when you cut back to it when Sean's running, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the audience is already familiar yeah. with that perspective, so they're and there's four bases. Yeah. But also it was a little bit like Rat in the Maze, like Will's. <clears throat> in this like sort of maze of Sean's office working through his problems. This is a very famous game. <laughs> this was really hard to get um, from the Red Sox, but it's a very famous uh, game. I wonder if Carlton Fisk has seen the movie. Have you heard from him? I hope he liked it. <laughs> there he is, Pudge. He was he was he was my favorite player when I was a kid. Boom! There it is. This is like a in Boston. This is the highlight of the Red Sox recent history. It's difficult because um, there's a you know huge <coughs> ownership lawsuit have, that's been going on for three years, and all the you know I mean baseball going on strike for a period of time. Here's the shot again coming up. So Boom! Right there, decking people. <laughs> Fisk always said he didn't like that people ran on the field because he thought that was a moment that he should have just shared with his teammates. This, this I really like that, that Matt added a line. I was watching the scene and I remember he did it once and I, I went over and I, I liked it so much. I was like, you got to keep doing it, which is when Sean says, I got to go see about a girl. His, his reaction is sort of like not just incredulous, but he kind of makes fun of him, which sort of diffuses the, the expectation that he's going to end up you know, later on mirroring that, see? And he makes fun of him right there. About a girl? Yeah, that's what you said? I had And they let you get away with that? Oh, yeah, they saw in my eyes that I meant it. You're kidding me. No, I'm not kidding you, Will. That's why I'm not talking right now about some girl I saw at about 20 years ago and how I always regretted not going over and talking to her. I don't regret the 18 years I was married to Nancy. I don't regret the six years I had to give up counseling when she got sick. And I don't regret the last years when she got really sick. I'm sure as hell don't regret missing a damn game. That's regret. Wow. Would have been nice to catch that game, though. I didn't know Pudge was going to hit a home run. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mm -hmm. I actually, I, I really like the way Gus shot this scene. I, I, just, I, I don't know, I just thought it was really uh, sensual the way he shot this, and it didn't feel that sensual. Like, when we shot it, it was just kind of a scene, but the lighting and the and the angles and it just you, hints of body parts and stuff like that. I just thought it was really kind of a, a really interesting uh, love scene. I think it's really sexy without being kind of gratuitous. It's tasteful and yet connotes a, like, real intimacy, you know? And yeah, that feeling that, that, that feeling that people, you know, have... A, in the middle of the night, you know, just between two people, and it's very. I remember Jean Yves was standing on the bed, <laughs> just shooting down at many here. But it's really that feeling when you first are in a relationship and you're like sleeping together all the time, and you just want to stay up. It's just really kind of intimate and fun and silly. And this is Minnie's stuff about the NBA that she she added. Like that shot there, you know. I mean, that's just like. And he uses shadows really well, and you can't really see a lot of stuff, but it's a. Uh, it's really effective. It's also like that. So you don't see his eyes. You just see like ear and ear. Johnny was standing on the bed maybe in a rehearsal or something, but 
we had a big, we had like a, a crane overhead, and there was some wide shots, but we realized if we just kept it really close like this, that it was way better. Like less is more. I didn't know you were gonna take it so far as to have me actually pick up the phone. It was supposed to like put the phone down before he actually, you know, anyone picked up, and then. And we got a voice. Somehow from you just went and pulled like a voice from somewhere. I like the way the sound just fades. You know out what it was from? It's from it's from the joke. What? Oh right, yeah, that's right. What, yeah, I remember. What do you that. want? <laughs> the way you fade out and they fade up the music, I, I, I really like that. Just kind of the scene that just you know, it doesn't have an end, you know, just kind of. Yeah, it's really nice, it just, and I like you know, it just never gets wide in there. It's nice. <laughs> The leprechaun's uh, got his dick in the monkey's ass and monkey Guys are like Will's family, and, you know, it's that kind of nervous first time, and then she starts to tell a joke about Irish people, you know, so it's like this could really go south pretty quickly. Um, we wanted to show it as an example of how she kind of effortlessly fit in another way to kind of show this superwoman almost, this, you know, like the neon lights flashing, like, Will, this is the one for you, you know. Um... This, this is Ben and Casey going back and forth. We had an original strain, like a bunch of stories that Ben told that are kind of urban folklore. Um, we just wanted to show this character who, uh, you know, you see the routine of their, their lives, and yet, he, and yet he's always got a story, and obviously these things don't really happen to him. They're kind of things that he heard, but uh, he kind of, he kind of uh, lays it all on the on the group every night at the bar and it's always one urban myth or another kind of in counterpoint to his actual life I guess this is a famous AA story I heard this story uh, when I was a little kid from my uncle um, who heard it in, in AA I think this story's been around for it always over 20 years to somebody that somebody knows. Yeah, somebody knows the guy who this happened to you know that was the vibe going to have this guy also like if you want to read any more into it, it's just they, you know, their life is very routinized. They kind of go to work, come to the bar, and so this is what makes it interesting. It's what, like, you know, it's entertaining and fun, and, and a, a world in which, you know, Will is happy and does, you know, enjoy himself. And there is something satisfying about the companionship of friends, especially when it centers around kind of humor. You know what I mean? And it's a place to like escape. But you know, if you're unhappy, you can forget about it and laughing with your friends. So he goes downstairs. I can pull the door open. What? State trooper that pulled him over. Stays like, fuck you mean what? You know what? I pulled you over last night is what? You fucking took off. Gus told Casey to, to just keep interrupting Ben. Like, Ben had this whole thing. He'd been waiting for, like, four years to do this story. And Gus told Ben's little brother to just henpeck him to death and just keep... And so, you know, a gunshot, gunshot. And, and, and Ben's just fine, like, would you shut the fuck up? I mean, because, you know, it just was... There were takes where we didn't have him interrupt, and there were takes where he was encouraged to interrupt as much as possible, which he was capable of interrupting quite a bit. <laughs> which, be, which became so annoying after a while that the dynamic that was set up was really fun. He was good at that. Yeah, really he good. good. He knew how to get under his big brother's skin, that's for sure. Well, question. And this is a joke. This is Minnie's joke, actually. We had a couple of different jokes for her to tell, and then... No, this was actually a joke I heard from my dad's friend. This is... This is my my mother, I remember. Well, that's right. Had, this, this is the, the, yeah. the blowjob joke. My mother had a real... She thought it was a very male joke. Because it, it, it was told by a man to me, but... Uh, 
but I think it's kind of brave that it, she tells it. Right, that's the that, that was like. kind of the, the thing that we thought made her a very di- interesting character is that she's kind of one of the guys, I guess. I want to give you a little present. I guess, like, when I first read the screenplay, my perception was that it, it had a very commercial appeal and it was written for for a large audience. And, I, you know, I think after we finished the rough cut, I think there was enough of the original intention, at least in my mind, that my guess was that if this film, if Good Will Hunting, didn't find a, a, a great reception, there was no film that, that I could bet on to create a stir, you know, in the, in the, in the general marketplace, which I wasn't really in the business of doing. I was usually, my films had always been something that, that I hadn't seen before, so I never really had it a way to judge how they would do in the marketplace. But with Goodwill Hunting, my guess was that it was already like a finished piece that would find a, a big audience. So when it did pan out, it wasn't uh, too much of a surprise. I mean, it just affirmed that, that you, could, you, know, you could see it from the beginning. Yeah, it was Casey put on a sleeping bag for a jacket. And yeah, at the last minute, we have these coats that are keeping us warm, like just standing around. And at the last minute, Casey said he was going to wear it in the scene in the wardrobe. People were literally physically trying to pull it off him, and he still went running into the scene. <laughs> just, he went his own way. He decided he was going to wear it. That makes no sense, you know? They were like, but Casey, no! Uh, it's kind of like I swallowed a bug, you know? Casey just kind of we'll did his own thing. God. This is a line that like, I cut out, but it was, he, I said, what, what, what I do said, I give me like? a ride to, give me a ride over to her dorm room. And I said, what do I look like, Al Cowlings? Apparently that was too contemporary a reference for Gus. He decided to cut it out. He went another way. Frankly, I think that maybe one of the, this film could have done another hundred million dollars with the Al Cowlings joke in, but, you know, you go your own way, Gus, you know? All right. Here's that moment where two people who know each other. Oh, now here he, he he retells the joke, which is kind of that's our math consultant down at the far end of the bar. That's Patrick O'Donnell. Oh shit! You didn't say that. I love this act. I met him in a Vietnamese restaurant in Toronto, and <clears throat> he looked like somebody that could play this part. And I wanted to find as many people that look like they might live in South Boston as possible. And this guy lived in Toronto. A lot of people were, we were flying up from Boston. So I stopped him. It was with Missy. We were location scouting or something. And stopped. You know, he went away. He went out of the restaurant, and I, I was too shy to go up and talk to him. But Missy was there, and she's not shy at all. So I said, Missy, go run down the street and talk to those guys and see if they, the guy with the beard will be in the movie. And it turned out he and his four friends were all math professors at the University of Toronto. He was a physics <coughs> professor. So we hit on <clears throat> two things at the same time, like a, a an advisor and also a, an extra. This is a scene to kind of set up their, uh, the two kind of divergent uh, um, theories on how to deal with Will. Um, we wanted to kind of start getting the... Uh, the idea of the sort of two father figures with very different ideas about how to kind of raise this kid, essentially, and, and ideas about genius and how you're supposed to handle people with gifts. and Both of them are pretty stubborn. Both of them think they're right. Initially, we had Robin's example was how Einstein's, um, you know, life was really, he had a lot of problems in life and his, you know, with his first wife and his kids and stuff, but um, he, he ended up coming up with the idea for the Unabomber, and, which then led into... 
which we then sort of refined and led into this whole exchange. This was all changed on the day, actually. It was it, there was this whole monologue about Einstein, but but uh, but Robin uh, he wanted to do this Unabomber thing, so it sent Ben scurrying off onto the internet to find find out what the field of study Ted Kaczynski was in. How Sean knew that, I'm still not quite sure, but he's a real Unabomber buff, I guess. <laughs> but like you guys cut cut it down from what it was, yeah, which I yeah. think was really smart. Wait, there was a couple cuts. One was cut down, and then there was an extra little cut back up. Did you ever hear of Gerald Lambo? In 1905, there were hundreds of professors renowned for their study of the universe, but it was a, it was a 26-year-old Swiss patent clerk doing physics in his spare time who changed the world. Can you imagine if I... Robin, um... Robin liked... He... He didn't seem to like to talk too much about. I mean, we, you talked during the sort of rehearsal area, and we visited um, some places and talked about different things. But when you were actually on the set, there wasn't a lot of discussion. If there was, it was it was he'd go like, no, no, but I've but he 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 would tell me at least, like no, but I've got another way to play it, or he would. He seemed to like to just do it, like I'll yeah. show you, rather than talking right. about it. It's like, well, let me try another. One. I'll show you. What I'm talking. About. Like that guy just seemed had so much energy. It seemed like he didn't want to sit around and wait to talk. You know, it always right, seemed yeah. like he just wanted to get in there and just keep going, keep doing it. And Stellan, I mean, everybody was sort of. I mean, there's certain ways that I work with actors in general, but then Stellan was was more like you could discuss it. I mean, he he had just a different feel. Everybody had a different feel. This was actually a note that we got in development about the people didn't want Lambo to seem like he was. Twisting his mus mustache, sitting at home, hatching a plan to ruin Will's life. So we actually put that line right in there, though, so just to really get the point across. This argument gets, is a real fine line about how to write it. You know, when we were initially talking about how heated this first exchange should get as opposed to the later exchange, I always thought it was kind of a delicate balance because you don't want to blow your, you know, your whole conflict too soon. And we wanted to have a kind of precursor or something that would come later, but we still wanted the scene to be honest. It was a really kind of tricky. I'm not sure that we Sorry, ended up even change. getting it quite exactly right. It's too heated? I think so. I think the end of it's probably still a little bit too heated. Well, Will, uh, now, this scene, nobody, everybody wanted, you know, not us, but a lot of the development people wanted to cut. It was, it was sort of on the same chopping block as NSA. I remember just laughing so hard writing this scene, <laughs> putting Shockey in this room with these guys. And the original scene is about twice as long as this, and we yeah, it's cut down. And and try and all of his all of Chucky's uh, lines are basically things that he's heard in court, so that's why everything he uses is a legal term. What's talking in a like ostensibly sophisticated way is to use the like twenty-five cent words he picked up, being defended. <laughs> talking about how these circumstances are mitigated, pursuant. Uh, I don't think I, I can. Uh, uh, Larry? <laughs> he also always you know, gets his cliches. He talks about mentioned attorney. He never mentioned an attorney. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Keep your ear to the grindstone. I always uh, liked. He's a friend of ours, actually, who, who has that talent for mixing his metaphors like that. Once said, you know, said that to me, yeah. Said to keep your ear. He said he really had to get his ear to the grindstone. <laughs> so he would come out with these kind of Chuckyisms that we would... Uh, I, We'd, we'd put right into the script. You know? He never wanted to be a fourth wheel, that kind of thing. Yeah, he said he never wanted to be a fourth wheel. He said, I'd come along with you, but I don't want to be, you know, like a fourth wheel. 
This is, of course, Harvard Square. I mean, there's a point at which, like, <coughs> there are 16 ex- family members. That's Matt's father right, right there. there. And my and and his stepfather's fa- family friend. Yeah, he's a, my mom's ex. How's it going? Fine. Yeah. Good. You want some help? No. Matt's dad is this sort of Warren Beatty-looking guy, right in between them with the gray hair. You can't tell this, but he's actually very, very short. <laughs> he's like 5'11". He's not that short. You know, um, my dad actually wanted to campaign for best extra. That was Matt's like mom. He just barely saw in the background there. My dad felt like, see, there he is right there. He felt like he... Uh, he was focused. He was focused. He actually got lost. He was playing Jay in this game of chess, and he got so caught up in it that, that he forgot that they were filming. I told him that was, this that was, was great. This was Pain, which is Harvard Square, in the middle of the day with all our family members there. It was like, it was really like, you know, parents' weekend at camp. You know, I mean, everybody was visiting us, so it was like everyone we ever knew walked by. And uh, so there, we had huge crowds, but it was kind of fun. Our acting teacher from high school was there that day, too, Jerry. That was cool. Caitlin and Shayna and all kinds of people. Here's my old man, as, as he would say, you know, glowing in the back with the sun. Going I think he's upstage by the Coke b- b- bottle. <laughs> That's what I'm looking at. We come with free extras. Anyone out there wants to hire us, we can provide a few free extras. If you shoot it in Boston, we'll, we can stock it. You do it so easily, I don't understand. I, this piano metaphor was always something that, you know, we all saw as like the only way came out of again trying to figure out a way to to represent something that was kind of inexplicable for Will. Like, you know, how does one explain a talent for music or the piano? You don't know. You just know that you can do it, you know. And so that was something that I always kind of stayed in from from when we first kind of wrote it beginning to end was that like, you know, he could just play and and uh, and that, you know, that was the only way that he could explain it to her. And obviously, in explaining it to her, you know, you're explaining to the audience Will's perspective on his own gift. But that was something that got talked about a lot. To what extent, how, do, how much do we define it? How much do we leave it sort of ambiguous? Um, and what do we tell the audience about how he feels about his own intelligence? That's the best I can explain. Come here. I have to tell you something. Huh? I have to tell you something. Oh. Well, uh, during the shooting, I was listening to um, Either Or, which is an Elliott Smith record, and there was Roman Candle. And I knew that it'd be nice to have a, uh, a sound like that for the film. And when we tried putting it to the picture during the edit, I got really excited. It seemed to really, like, gel with the film. And so we used it pretty much. It ended up, because a lot of the songs were love songs, it ended up to be the sound of Skyler and Will. There's Harvard Square from above. Is she awake? No. Yes, you are. Will, come to California with me. I want you to come to California with me. Here's a good story for this scene was just that uh, 
this was probably this was Minnie's kind of biggest scene in terms of something that was very emotional and um, and and for and for my character too. And what Gus did was, uh, which was really amazing for the, the actors, was he was he choreographed the uh, the scene in a way that uh, there would be no break. Like Minnie's shot, Minnie's single in this scene carries right through, so she never has to pause, you know. So she did the scene for probably five or six takes of just all the way through the scene. It was a real gift to the actor. You're not stopping and setting up because there are a lot of different movements in this scene. So Gus and Johnny would always move the camera around in a way that, that didn't inhibit the, the, the actor, and, and it was all kind of for performance. And my, my single in this was broken up into two, um, two different shots. You can see it's kind of handheld here. Um, but um, but it's, it's a real gift to kind of play this whole, because it's a serious scene, and it has a whole kind of build to it. And... and there was no stopping and starting. We were done with this scene before lunch. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, this scene that was kind of this big, it's kind of albatross was just done so quickly. Um, because, you know, it was like one of those moments where it was like, well, that's it. Yeah, I guess that's it. One of the things for those, anyone who cares about sort of like, take the transition from screen, script to screen, was this scene and the scene that precedes it, we always thought we had to break up because it was too sort of, semi-contentious tension discussions between Will and Skyler, and it was they sort of one followed the other. And we always thought that, you know, <clears throat> having the two right next to one another without being broken up was kind of, you know, would be just violating a kind of flow of the movie, you know. And uh, it ended up working fine, but we spent a lot of time agonizing and just sort of going, well, we can't just put them together. It's too repetitious. It's too similar. But then... We did that in the cut, uh, too. We used to put Lambeau's fight here yeah. and then break it up, and then sometimes we'd go back. It's the we'd same thing we around. toyed with in the, in the writing and never really, you know, and it's some of those things where you just, you never know until you just finally see it and it works, and it just kind of depends on what happens and how, where the audience's mood is. There's no real hard and fast rule. Fuck it, I want to give it a shot, then at least I'm honest with you. I'm not honest with you? No, what about your 12 brothers? No, you're not going. You're not leaving. What do you want to know? What? That I don't have 12 brothers? Yeah. That I'm a fucking orphan? No, yeah. you don't want to hear I that. I didn't know no, that. No, you don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear that I got it. fucking cigarettes put out of me when I was a little kid. I didn't know that. this that. isn't fucking surgery, that the motherfuckers stabbed me. You, you don't want to hear that shit, Skylar. I don't do. I With don't Ben and Matt, these guys knew the script so, so well that I didn't need... If I got in and said a whole bunch of things, it would be at adding to whatever they were doing, but it wasn't necessarily. I mean, they could tell me better than I could tell them sometimes. Um, I noticed Minnie, <clears throat> she liked to talk about a lot of things, but she really, like, she kind of did this gestalt thing. Before a take, she would go, <sighs> and then she would just do it, and she would never, like, flub a line. I always noticed that about her. She was, it was, she would like, and she would almost pull <clears throat> the scene into existence, like that three-dimensional thing. She wouldn't change any lines, but she would make it. Maybe by practice, she had been doing something she'd been reading at home, but somehow she would just will it into being, and it was always just amazing to me. That yeah. I just went, wow, you know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
this is where um, he gives his own personal theory on education to Will and says, you know, you know, important is to have a good teacher and that stuff. And then <clears throat> John came up to us that day and said, do you mind if I change? Because he had a little speech here that we wrote for him, but he wanted to change it to, um, to his own thing. And we all said, yeah, it'd be great, you know. And then Lambeau promptly sends him out for coffee. This is kind of emblematic of the uh, the sort of uh, relationship mold that we borrowed from Amadeus with the Mozart-Salieri kind of relationship that we used to to talk about these characters quite a bit. And this, there are there are only so many people in the world who can tell the difference between me and you. And you know the genius's disdain for what he's doing, whereas the the reverence of the kind of second greatest for what the greatest can do and his unique ability to see how great you know, Will's mind is, really. And in fact, how tortured he is by all this kind of uh, acknowledgement that he gets from his students. It's totally empty for him when he sees this kid who can just do it, do something that he just wishes so deeply that he could do. And it kind of makes all of his awards and all of his things just have a total hollow ring because he just knows in his soul that, that you know, that he can't That's do That's the it. candy striper shirt, by the way. <laughs> I think a lot of people probably identify with <clears throat> Lambo more, you know, like just the sense of, I mean, who there aren't that many people who identify with being the greatest in the world. Most people, I think, identify with feeling frustrated, feeling like other people have more than they do, and why didn't they get that? And, and Lambo's uh, point of, I've worked hard, I do this, I, I have discipline, why why am I not this, you know, why, did, why the hell do they grace this kid with this talent, you know? It, it, it was less an exploration of genius than kind of this exploration of this kind of world and these friends and these dynamics that were set up by this kind of gift that this kid had that was that was what was more i don't know um compelling to us as the writers anyway the genius part was a device as smart as as will is with i mean with memory and with numbers he's still like a human being um, I forget whose idea it was to actually burn it. Originally, we crumpled this proof and just threw it on the floor. That was and mine. So, yeah. Fire. And instead of, but it was done so in rehearsal. Effective. It was the kind of thing where, like, what if we do this? And then Stellan just went with it. You know? Everyone loved it. It clicked so well in the rehearsal that it was something. That it was like, yeah. And then you you threw it, and Stellan went, got to go down on his knees, and it. It started with just going down on his knee. Yeah. Right. Like, and right. Stellan and really it, did it. Pick amazing. it up. Yeah. He loved doing that in rehearsal. And this is a great reveal, you know. Boom! It's on fire, and it's just like, oh my god. <laughs> he just goes bombing for the proof. That's. And initially. Uh, yeah. Initially, I walked out of the door later. Yeah. But Gus cut it. Uh, <coughs> cut it so that the last line is delivered line after is Will's so gone, which I think is much like more that? effective. Yeah, yeah, I liked it a lot. It just seems like, you know, it's nice because he's not saying it to Will. It's just sort of to the void. If you ever read the script, I mean, and see how much of a device this character reads, like it's really incredible what Stellan does with this role because he just has such an incredible range within this very, just you know, the constructs. Of this game. I mean, it's very. It's a very constricted role, and, and he just does an amazing job of just creating stuff out of it. And and I leave here, although... He left after Lambo was finished talking, and see now he'll deliver the line now. Now Stone does alone. I mean, obviously, we'd been there to see it all get shot, and I had actually watched almost all of the dailies, but... Uh, yeah, I didn't watch any of the dailies, but but uh, this, 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 this is, is a, a scene. scene. Casey's upstairs doing push-ups and to get all red-faced, and he comes running down, and he's carrying a baseball mitt, and no one knows why. Um, he never said he was going to do that. He just came <laughs> he just into the scene up with, with a baseball, baseball mitt. Now, at this point, I was supposed to be really serious, 
Um, but I, I could, but I was just, you know, he just cracked me up. I mean, what is he doing? You know, so he really, really ah, he lets out a good long sigh <laughs> as he sits down, like he's really. Mm. Yeah. Oh, not my glove. <laughs> no, yeah. I just saw the glove and the, <laughs> the idea that it was really my glove that he used, and that was the injection. <laughs> They're kind of accustomed to Morgan's little on, masturbatory oh excursions upstairs, but he's really taking it too far this time. And That's my little league glove. <laughs> This and he says, what do you want me to do? <laughs> I mean, that's just... Yeah, I think people... It's like his hands are really tied here. <laughs> you, know? you can see Matt smiling, too. You can see he's really supposed to be like... I was supposed to be somber. Like alienated. I said, the hell with it. I can't. I can't. It's too funny. The NSA scene came out of the idea of trying to show how he thinks, that how kind of maddening it can be if... if your mind is so facile that every time some idea comes up, you see every permutation of every single thing because it's always working. Now, here's how uh, we endeavored to save this speech was... used to be divided up. Yeah, it was divided yeah. up, and the whole monologue took place in this office, and at the end, you get the payoff reaction of this guy sitting in the window and, uh, and the general here. And, and what happened was uh, they said, it just seems like this added scene. It just seems like it doesn't fit. So what Gus cut in is this... I start on this whole riff, and at the end of it, you see that I'm 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 really relaying it to Robin and, and what happened. So it kind of becomes, and then and then that and then Robin and I get into in, into an argument. So it leads into kind of developing that relationship. So it was a we way toyed to, with moving it from here to being all in Sean's office. People objected to the scene; they thought it was superfluous. And then you know, ultimately, we were able to save it by like like Matt says, splitting it up and giving it some more drive. But I always thought that the, it was enough to motivate it, but to just show how Will... Boom, see, I'm in Sean's it. office now. There's the cut. Um, and, uh, and that, and that kind of kept This the is how I always thought, even when it was, we were shooting a different script, there wasn't this direct cut, but I always thought that you wanted to go from one to the other. Yeah, actually, when we shot this, I remember you, you when we shot in the other... Uh, in, in the, you had in the to, NSA you had office, yeah, I started to do yeah. it, and, and you said, yeah, why don't you just start to do it? It was almost you like did the whole thing. Yeah. This is just me and Ben trying to make each other laugh, <laughs> you know. We knew that we wanted to be, we would be, we had the opportunity to take to something to a sort of absurd extreme, you know, take it to the, the you know, the infinite degree, sort of, and... Uh, you know, it's pretty well-trod ground in terms of the politics of it. It's, <clears throat> it's the way we were raised, a kind of leftist sort of uh, socio-political perspective. But we then we, you know, got to like throw in all this, the, the, the kind of colloquialisms into it, and uh, and like have fun with it. And and uh, but it's totally believable. This kid would say that. I mean, South Boston uh, per capita lost more people in the Vietnam War than anywhere else in the country. So there is this feeling like when there's a war, we go. And, and, and who, whom do we, whom does it benefit? You know, we come home, our lives aren't any better, but, you know, we've, we've all gone off and sacrificed. Take his job, give it to his sworn and at the time we wrote this, of course, like, it was much closer to the Gulf War, so the, the issue of, you know, fighting for oil and, and the, uh, the Valdez spill wasn't so long ago. You know, it was, <clears throat> was current when we initially came up with it. By the time the movie got made, it, was, uh, it seemed like Will was well-versed in distant political history. But Somebody who challenges you. Uh, Chucky. You know, Chucky's family, he'd lie down in fucking traffic for you. you know, I'm talking about someone who opens up things for you, touches your soul. 
I always liked how it just segued right into like, do you I, think I, you're I, alone? His reaction to because that. Because that originally was the start of that other scene. It was just this other scene that started, do you think you're alone? And it didn't yeah. come from anywhere. And so yeah. Gus cut it in this way, and it really, it really worked. I love that. Yeah. Do you think you're alone? Because he doesn't react to it, and then he comes back to it because he's to show that he's heard it, you know, by referring back to that long speech. But he's unimpressed by that because he knew Will was a genius. And what he gets out of that is a feeling that this kid must be really very lonely, and it's a nice, like, sort of segue. What, what he gets is this companionship and this feeling, well, if he can keep this going without, without this exact thing happening, what he's worried about is Sean's going to keep pushing him. And he's started to enjoy <clears throat> being with Sean, and he's, like, able to kind of coast through on that, as Matt says, a degree of companionship. What he Sean says in the scene, wait, what's going on? I thought you were my friend, you know, I thought we were friends, and it's just kind of like this, you know... Sean's not gonna just not gonna let him get off that. He's not gonna allow him to just sort of hang out with him and not progress further, kind of confront the stuff that's really at the. And this is the argument that Will can make to any kind of professor or whatever, but he can't really make it to Sean because Sean, uh, Sean, you know, he can't pull the 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 South Boston Trump card on Sean because Sean's from there too. So, so it's this guy that like that first scene between them, Will's probing and probing and. And you read books, you you know, and he's just, and Sean's just deflecting everything, and he finally finds this guy who he can't, he just can't, he has no excuse with. There's no, there's no, there's no defense against this guy. Um, and so this, this scene is about the question just being put to him, and just, and he just can't deal with it because he doesn't have an answer, which is what Sean says to him, because you don't know. Because I don't see a lot of honor in that. Matt added that shepherd, uh, I want to be a shepherd and go up in Nashville. I remember he came up to me before, it seems like, I'm thinking of just saying to him that I want to be a shepherd and go to Nashville. And I really made me laugh. And I said, you should definitely do it. And then, of course, Robin never wanted to be outdone. He says, <laughs> fuck you. He, Robin comes back with, you're the shepherd. It's, he's like, he's where we, you know, we always want him to, like, lash out. As a last resort, he goes back to trying to, like, push buttons on Sean about, you're a, you know, you're a burnout and your wife's dead. And boom, and the guy doesn't, he's unfazed, and he just comes right back at him with the question, which just leaves him just like, he's got to either, you know, put up or shut up right there, so. He just says, you know, time to go. And he's not, you know, throwing him out in the sense of rejection. He's saying either, and either you deal with this. me honestly and let's talk. Otherwise, this isn't, you know, this, this is not viable. And uh, and that's what's kind of, you know, theoretically motivates Will to go further. That You're the Shepherd line always got a big laugh, too, which amazed me that audiences were that quick. Because I wasn't that quick. When he first said it, I said, fuck you. And he said, you're the Shepherd. And I, it took me a minute to get it. But people always got it in the theaters. Or in the ones that I Ben and Matt had cleverly like devised their screenplay so that the story was, was propelled with great force by using these dialogue scenes. Each scene had a, a very definite reason and a very definite force that drove, propelled you right into the next scene. Um, I think which was, it was forceful, more forceful than any film that I had made before. This movie's become so popular in South Boston that like that phone booth now is the well-known phone booth on that certain corner. I read the Boston paper sometimes and it's like, so-and-so owns the store where you know the phone booth is situated from where he will call Skyler before he, it's so bizarre, these things are sort of picked because they're accessible or it was across the street and then it becomes like the phone where Will made the call, you know?
sort of the same experience we had when we first showed up in the set where just because we wrote like the name yeah. of some bar, we'll just call it Timmy's Tap because my father's named Tim. You get there and there's like a big neon sign that says Timmy's Tap and it's all come to life, you know? You feel like going, let there be light and seeing what happens. I was freezing that day. I remember just sitting there, just freezing. Sometimes you can't tell how a film's gonna work out until it's all put together. And um, it can surprise you. By the time you get it put together, you go like, oh my God, this, it's, it's tedious because it's only this. You've left out some parts of the filmmaking experience. And I realized that the whole film were people, was people made up of people sitting in chairs someplace talking. And I had only the script to rely on. I thought, you know, the script is great, so why, you know, there's nothing really to worry about. So I didn't change my attack, but it did, it did sort of dawn on me that maybe by the time we get into the editing room, it's gonna be very interesting to see exactly what's going on with the finished film. And, you know, nothing was, was wrong, you know, by the, by the rough cut, it was pretty much um, great. I'm sitting in your office and the boy isn't here. It was 10 past five. An hour and 10 minutes late. Well, if he doesn't show up and I file a report saying he wasn't here and he goes back to jail, he won't be on my conscience. You know, one of the reasons, again, that we initially wrote this was as an acting vehicle, and I wanted to get accomplished a couple of different things. You know, I wanted to be—I had been playing a lot of bad guys. I wanted to be funny. I had, you know, I wanted to be and do a moving scene. And I always thought it was really moving when you know two people have known each other for a long time say something serious to, to one another that they haven't ever said in their relationship. So the scene was built up and talked about, and we just kind of went there and shot a couple takes, and I didn't want to like to do too much grandstanding or make a big kind of moment out of it, but rather just sort of very simply tell him in the hopes that that would be the most effective way to do it. And as Matt said, it just was over. That sign in the background on the right is Majori Builders. It's actually the construction site that Matt and I worked at, um, which was the inspiration for why we're, you know, where we got the idea to be doing demo together, because we did this together, you know, a couple of summers. And, and so, since the guy was nice enough to give us a job, we thought we'd put a sign in the movie. And one of the things I always thought was that it really does bother him, it's really difficult for him, which is why he's never said this, that he's gonna miss him. Like, it's like probably the most painful thing in the guy's life be to lose his very best friend in the world. But, you know, it's that kind of selfless thing where, you know, it bothers him more to see somebody he cares about so much, you know, pissing his life away, which is what he thinks he's doing. Part of the thing that, always moved me about this idea was that it is going to be hard for him you know and when I went up to the door at the end I didn't want it to just be celebratory I wanted it to be like mixed emotions you know he'll miss his friend and he really does love him and it's only because if he just kind of liked the guy and enjoyed hanging out with him he would never go to these lengths to tell him that you know he ought to leave town but it's only because he cares about him so much and it matters so much to him they just can't take it anymore seeing him you know just kind of fuck around with something that like he says you know a lot of people would, would do anything to have, and he's got an enormous number of opportunities because of this, you know, gift. This, this scene I noticed in rehearsals, it was a lot different than, you know, it was like bigger in the rehearsals, and then when we actually did it, like you were way like laid back, which was really good, I thought. Yeah, I just, well, I kind of tried around stuff and experimented, and I always try to like do it more 
big first so then I can just kind of relax and settle in so I don't feel like, you know what I mean? I know, feel like I know the range of, of, of where you can go. But it was scary, you know what I mean? Especially since they had already started shooting for me to come in. It was just like there was definitely that point where I was like, ooh, we said all this time how we know what we're going to do. We've been pushing so hard to get it made. Now we really have to show up and be good in the movie. Otherwise, we're really going to look like idiots. You know what I mean? So I, in a way, there was kind of more pressure than there usually is in an acting job, you know, because we'd been fighting for years and years and years to get the chance to do it. And then we finally had got it. The onus was really on us to kind of... And, you know, the tendency is to, you know, and I never learned to read, you know, and be very, um, you know, kind of over the top with it. And so to just play it laid back like that was you need to have an actor and a director who kind of realized that that's how it would fit nicely into the kind of whole structure. I think that all my films have been, even though they're, uh, they're sort of about characters, my earlier films were about characters that were not really mainstream characters. Malinoche was about a gay grocery store clerk who falls in love with a Mexican migrant who's in his store. Drugstore Cowboy was uh, drug addicts on the road in the Northwest. Both those stories were about like the, the, the relationships between the characters, or they were about relationships between people. This story was a little different in the sense that it, w it had moved to a less sort of like off-the-beaten-track setting for the characters. Goodwill Hunting, the device with which it used to tell its story was largely dialogue characters having discussions with each other. Stalin always said that he, he decided to lie back down just because he has a headache in this scene. And he was like sitting there holding his head and Gus came over to him and was like, Stalin, are you all right? And he was like, you have a headache? And he was like, oh, do you need some aspirin? And he was like, oh no, I don't have a headache. Lambo has a headache. Yeah, it was between takes. He was going, oh. <laughs> <laughs> laying back and groaning and, and I thought maybe he needs something. I remember in the rehearsal, we were sitting on that little sofa, me and you were sitting there, and, uh, and, Stone, and Stone just came in late, and I thought he was just trying to, yeah, I thought he was just trying to mess with us, but in fact, he had decided to lie down. But I'm sure seat. he's the kind of guy that's like, I can use the whole set. They're yeah. sitting over decide there. decide to lie down because you're sitting there. You were angry at me for doing what you could have done, but ask yourself. Ask this is obviously the boiling point of this uh, uh, rivalry, you know, this kind of age-old relationship. We, although, always like that idea of this, you know, argument that went 20 years back with people and all the small stuff that gets said, and then finally it just comes to a boiling point and it all comes out. A lot of this stuff is like, you know, personal relationships between people. They had the build and then the climax, which all happens right around this time, is that everybody finally says to the other person sort of what's really going on without being, you know, on the nose. This, this particular one comes out of anger, and, you know, mine with Will comes out of compassion, uh, you know, Wills and Skylers comes out of a kind of fear, but, you know, if you have a movie about relationships, you know, that was the only way we knew to kind of bring those to a head is people who finally tell one another what they sort of really are thinking because they can't, they don't want to sit with it anymore in the way that even though that's difficult, it sort of works out for the, you know, for the better, even if it's a little bumpy and, you know, the, the results aren't exactly what you'd hope. And that moment came out of, somebody told us very quickly about a dynamic where in Princeton there was a study of psychiatrists who would sit in front of a withdrawn patient and speak to each other as honestly as they could about one another, like, I really don't like your wife, you know, I think you have a lot of problems dealing with other people. The therapist. The therapist to one another, and that would draw the patient out more effectively than any other kind of therapy. They did, however, have to abandon it because it was too difficult on the therapist. But we thought that, that would be a good final straw for Will to finally 
to see those two guys going at it is what finally precipitates his, his emotional kind of breakthrough. Plus, he is looking for something coming back. And, um... Mark McGovern, a friend of ours, did a lot of research on He works with adopted and abused kids, and he uh, sent us an enormous amount of really disturbing research that we then integrated into a file about Will Hunting, taken from real cases that Robin had in his hands while he was shooting, about, you know, like with just the most hideous stories of abuse. And we told Robin that they were true stories that we'd taken, and so I think it kind of helped the scene. Have you had any uh, experience with that? 20 years of counseling. Yeah, I've seen some... It's uh, like where we put the, the frac... The fractoid thing on. Experience with that. It's a fragmented, you know, emotional makeup of Will. I liked it because it seemed like that's the point where he kind of breaks, you know. Yeah. Finally, something happens to you at a young age when you're that you're that traumatized. It's like he's compartmentalized different things. You know, yeah. like the math is separated from the emotional. It's a really effective way to show how like dealing with traumatic situations when you're young can change your approach to life later on. I think. And I can say that because I had n really wasn't my idea, and I had no idea you were doing it. <laughs> we did that with a couple other shots too. We just didn't have the remember the wrench that was taken oh, out. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But we did fracture those shots. Well, I gotta go with the belt there, Ben. I used to go with the wrench. Why the wrench? Cause fuck him. That's why. Your foster father. This is just kind of simple, kind of repetition. But each each piece of the repeat, it kind of peels away, sort of another layer. And he, Robin says each it's the same line, but it's spoken with a different intent and a different understanding each time. So he can tell that he's getting through. He wants to be kind of direct, but still compassionate. Will's really hoping he'll stop right here. Hey, Will. Gets more and more kind of serious until he hits the don't fuck with me. You see this? Kind of closing in on him. This is not your fault. Yeah, I know that. Never really had a father, you know, and Sean had never really had a son, so I think fault. in the script, the kind of line at the end of the scene says, We pull back on these two lonely figures being father and son together. It's kind of like these two guys playing it. Father and son, it never. As the process kind of went along, you know, obviously the point that, you know, that, that, that those guys have to get to is a point of kind of honesty and where he kind of comforts him. And once that scene emerged, we always knew that that was, you know, where they would end up. And scenes between those, between the first Will Sean meeting and, the, and that scene there would change. Scenes after it would change. But the fact that those two being kind of bookends to a relationship... <laughs> Sometimes it's easier to write the end. You, you kind of see the end a little more clearly than the, than the middle. It's more gray. I always felt that <clears throat> when you guys were writing that, I, I mean, I, I don't really have any clear examples, but that, that you arrived at things that you um, had experienced, like things that, that were in your, in your lives. That the, like the, the brilliance of the screenplay to me is that sort of idea of writing what you know. And there are things that had windows of things that had happened, or you'd seen happen, or friends that had had things happen, th friends that were close to you, that like you got these things and you like arrived at them, and they were so, um, they were large in your minds, and they were intense, that they they worked into the screenplay, you know, like realities of your own existence, that 
I mean, that are like the most powerful things in your lives. We certainly have trouble kind of making stuff up, you know. Yeah, it's, it's easier to write something that's a really good guy point to go. That's something we would always click on Matt and go, well, you know, remember that time when like Derek did that thing and they went to the thing and they ended up being, you know what I mean? And that was a the kind of common language we had because we know one another for so long. And then whenever something was real and moved us, it always seemed like a really good indicator that yeah. it was something we should use, you know. And so it's like, it's like, it's re what you're watching is like real stuff, you know. And you're like, the dialogue and the situations are like really, they're arranged in a, the story is what's not necessarily real, but like. The, mo the moments and the things that people are saying. The feelings that people have are all definitely Really real, yeah. I'm really surprised, actually, at how much people have responded to it. I thought it would be kind of small movie to a lot of people talking to one another, makes maybe some money, make a profit, some critics might like it, others, you know, might not. I've been amazed at how people just want it like they like last night this lady just wouldn't let me go and she was like but just it's moved so many people and this movie is about you know broken but not destroyed you know damaged but not done and I mean she it's it so powerfully moved her and I just thought part of me thought oh people probably react this way to the young and the restless too you know mm -hmm. but uh still it's it's very surprising to me you know how the level of reaction that people have to because we have so many different themes in it. it's not like they all say the same thing they all kind of people latch on to different stuff the first time that I heard about Goodwill Hunting was when Matt came into a an audition for To Die For for the role of Jimmy, and we I remember when uh, when he came in and uh, apparently according to my casting director Matt had mentioned uh, the screenplay that he had, he was working on to us in this in this room and and also um, at that time Matt did this really great audition. And, and there were a couple changes, like uh, after one read-through, I said something very slight, and Matt like completely turned on a dime and did some great new thing with the lines, which I was very impressed by. <clears throat> and I think that, you, you know, it's one of those things where you're really going for the role, you know. And so there was this thing, and I thought, wow. And so the third time through, there was some other, like, for me, very slight suggestion of how to change it, but then it was exactly like followed which was really amazing so we were really interested in Matt for Jimmy and when he left the room remember Laura Ziskin said um, well he's a movie star that was a movie star the guy that just was in here and um, I wasn't you know really I didn't know how to really spot movie stars but I thought he was really good and uh, <clears throat> a little while later although we we went with Joaquin Phoenix for the role a little while later I read in Variety that Matt and Ben had sold the, the screenplay Goodwill Hunting to Castle Rock, so it was news in the papers. And I said, oh, here's the, the thing, the screenplay. Um, and I, I thought it was pretty amazing that, that they had written and sold the screenplay. And then years later, like two or three, two years later, I guess two years later, <clears throat> I was eating lunch with um, Mark Tusk, who was at Miramax at the time. And <clears throat> he mentioned, we were talking about Boston, and he mentioned that... Uh, that Ben and Matt had um, written the screenplay that was set in South Boston. And I said um, something about, you know, like, oh, yeah, I read about that in Variety a few years ago. And he said, well, we have it. I'll send it over to you. They had just acquired it at Miramax. So he sent it to my hotel, and I read it that day. And this is uh, two years ago <clears throat> in the uh, sort of late fall of, I guess, 96... And um, and I was on pretty much trying to find Ben because I had 
I had Joaquin's number who had Casey's number who had um, Casey and Ben's mom's number who had Ben's number. So it was this sort of chain that afternoon. I was kind of like looking. And I'd only read, read half the screenplay, but I was really, you know, thought it was really great. I wanted to say how great it was, and I also wanted to say that if they were looking for somebody to direct it, I would, I would do it. Happy birthday. Stoic for God, huh, bitch? Fuck it, come on. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I think even this little anecdote about the little guy who won't back down because he's constantly getting into fights, you know, as opposed to a big guy. It's like, we know guys like that, so we always kind of wanted to put it in the movie. Come on, Russ. What? Oh. We knew you had to get back and forth. <laughs> a lot of people found this kind of emotional, which we, which we never really pr predicted them giving him the car. And uh, we, uh, we always just saw that as the kid needed a way to get to California. <laughs> and then we were like, well, they would make him a car because they, they could build it. And so that was kind of a nice moment. But some people really just, oh, man, you know, because they built it. and the We always liked the image of, you know, I mean, it's kind of heavy-handed. Ben and I thought it was kind of a little saccharine, but the idea that... You know, that's what carries him to his new life is, you know, all his friends and what they represent to him and stuff, and that's really what he's bringing with him. And, you know. One of the things that we were... Somebody's head's in the reflection of shot, like Shawnee or something. Yeah, I had one. Oh, yeah. It's not one of you guys. <laughs> I was saying, I was just thinking, actually, that, you know, one of the reasons why, like, we were able to do stuff, I think, that I'm thinking why people were moved is because... We were able to kind of try stuff and experiment and concede that some things didn't work. You know, it's the danger of like now that we were ostensibly won the Academy Award. If we were to start believing that everything that we came up with was a great idea, we wouldn't be able to write something like this because we wouldn't be able to kind of, you know, criticize our own work and reflect on it and, you know, refine it and recognize that, uh, you know, add new stuff or be willing to open it, explore different avenues. Yeah, it's in, it's inhibiting almost. Like, so you'll never, we'll never write again. Write again. <laughs> it's all over, Gus. It's all downhill from here anyway. Why? Why bother? <laughs> Stone wanted to play this scene like he'd already had a few drinks. I remember that was his big thing that he came in there kind of drunk to you know in order to get his screw his courage up to go back and sort of apologize in the way that unspoken dynamic that they kind of have. And I always like this scene because you, for the first time you see kind of how they did get along, even though they're not really alike, that how their friendship, what their friendship was rooted in when they were back in college. You know, they do enjoy one another's company. How about a drink right now? Yeah. It's a good idea. The bickering is kind of a part of it. This one's on me. Oh, and this is like a, the Casablanca right shot yes, of the two, two guys the walking away. This is my to it's the stage. They just kind of get to the top of the stairs. And yeah, stop. those stairs end in about right four there. steps. Right, right, right. When their feet leave, your 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 head Literally, is at the ceiling. Right you had it. you had to stop there. You dragged it out as long as you could. Here, yeah, see, we, got the, we got the Red Sox, so we got him in a Red Sox jacket. This was toward the end of Robin's. Uh... Now, this is like a montage that was first thing I saw edited somehow. I guess we shot this stuff first. Is that possible? Somehow I saw this first, and I was really, like, blown away. I just I thought it was, like, so brilliant. And it was all like this in the screenplay, like each cut. Yeah, we had a... 
definite idea of how we want it. That's the only shot that remains from the car. Yeah, from that rigging oh, the toe. Tow. <laughs> tow car, yeah. But it's like you, a lot of times a montage like this, you'll goof around with it. But it was like this in the screenplay, and it remained exactly these beats. We, we yeah, we always saw this ending pretty clearly. We had the ending well before we had the middle. Once we came upon this ending, we just trying to effectively build up to it. Casey and uh, Cole were discussing not riding in the back seat. Well, they were fighting over who would get in the front. It was actually very much how it would really be. Of course, Casey, I mean, I can't tell you how many people have told me that. Oh, is your brother the guy who gets in the front seat at the yeah, end? Yeah, people really remember that. And it's amazing because it's such a thing Casey just, like, did, you know? <laughs> the way he did it. This we always saw, I always saw anyway, is pretty much the hardest acting uh, moment in the movie. Um, this is the thing that Ben does on the, on the porch here. Um, there's a nice shot of Robin coming all the way down. You have to remember that since this was Robin Williams when we were in South Boston, he's doing this scene in front of an audience of about 500 Yeah, people. there are 500 people right by the camera. I'm standing right there because I read the letter to him so he could hear my voice. Um, One time I went up to this house, the first take, and knocked on the door. I said, Will, you know, and obviously he's not supposed to be there. Somebody goes, yeah, who is it? The people who like, live there were answering the door. Here, this is Toronto. And it's Boston. <laughs> it's the magic of movies. But this is this is to me is like really I mean this realization, I mean it's very I mean, you're happy, you're sad, it's it's pretty complex. I think Gus gave him a single single cello here too. <laughs> didn't didn't Danny It's the only piece of coverage I actually have in the movie by myself. Pietro, Pietro wanted to make this a lot shorter. And it was doing such an amazing thing that I said, no, we got to have, like, the whole the whole deal. Gus, I love it. But I think it's like even... <laughs> I knew Pietro was always punching holes in my boat, man. Look, you can see your breath. You're freezing. It was really cold that day. But I remember I didn't go to the set because I didn't want to be anywhere around when you did that. We wanted to make sure that... Not there. He wasn't there, actually. Watch my baby. <laughs> yeah. The great thing is that he's really happy because he gets shotgun. And look at Cole. Cole just, you know, yeah, I hope you're proud of yourself. <laughs> he's really like, Billy would have sat up front, but that's fine. I'm bigger. <laughs> and there they go. And here I really just it's said this out loud to Robin. And this was absolutely 100% Robin Williams ad lib, this last line. Son of a bitch. He stole my life. <laughs> Which is really, thank God for that, you know. There are nights where I think, you know, we kind of go to sleep. You'll have to allow yourself some satisfaction, you know, and as you just sort of drift off, you look out of the corner of your eye and you see your Oscar sitting there and you think, you know, and they wanted to cut that scene. You know what I mean? But uh, the Oscars are watched by more people than, than ever see any anybody's movie. So all of a sudden, more people just kind of know who you are. So it affects your life. But also, I think there's a, there's a danger that you have to guard against about thinking that that's somehow like an endorsement of every idea you have or, you know, like I said, the reason why 
I think it works is because we were it was collaborative. We allowed, uh, you know, we, we were smart enough to use the input of a lot of smart people and to take advantage of a lot of other people's work and to be very critical of our own work and, you know, redo stuff and, and uh, you know, so then you can't think, well, oh, then well, I, I won the Oscar, so I'm, I must know exactly what I'm talking about, you know. I, I, you have to guard against, you know, hubris or really feeling like, you know. You see a lot of, you see it happen to directors a lot, actually, where... Uh where they take a long time if they if they win Oscars or something, they'll take a long time before they do something else. And Anthony Minghella said it to me really well at one point, um, talking about getting ready to do this film, The Talented Mr. Ripley. And he said, "Well, you know, I do have the elephant on my back," you know, which was his way of saying, you know, I mean, his movie won nine Oscars, and so suddenly, he, you know, there's this people want to defer to him, you know, and uh, and that's frightening. People want to defer to us. I mean. We, we got a lot done out of argument and out of debate. And People weren't deferring to us because, like, in fact, everyone was very free with us because what the fuck did we know? We were just these kids who wrote a script. So people would, you know, would be very open with us and very just kind of would say, well, this is terrible, you know what I mean? But this this kind of works. And not, you, know, you certainly don't want to get in a situation where, you, where people aren't afraid to kind of be honest with you or treat you any differently. The, the, uh, the, the other thing is that Ben and I have going for us is our relationship kind of precedes any of this. I mean, not even the Oscars. We, it precedes the movies, it precedes Hollywood, it precedes just kind of everything. So we, we're, we've always been pretty free to crack on each other and tell each other what, what sucks and what doesn't. And, and uh, you know, it's not like I look at him and go, oh my God, I'm telling an Oscar winner that his idea is terrible. You know, it's Ben, you know, and he looks at me the same way. So much of this kind of town, this industry is built on perception and you've got to I guess people try and, you know, agents try and get your you perceived a certain way. But, I mean, as long as you don't perceive yourself that way. Ben's still the guy who lives around the corner. It doesn't mean he's, it doesn't mean he's like a chump who lives around the corner. It doesn't mean he's like some genius Oscar winner. We never wanted to, like, we never judge people just because they weren't successful to begin with. I mean, that's one of the things that I think is really good, too, is that we always, all, all of us, not just Matt and I, but friends and the people that we kind of came up with, it's just like... We would always evaluate people based on whether or not we thought they were good. And sometimes we would lament the fact that, like, how come no one else recognizes this? But, you know, so, you know, we never used sort of the world's opinion as, as a guide for what our opinion should be. I can't imagine having a better working experience than this. This was actually the, uh, <clears throat> the keys of, like, I think four different departments came up to me at the wrap party of this movie and said that this was the best working experience they'd ever had ever I mean which was pretty amazing to like see these kind of weathered you know really gifted people who've been around for a long time say you know because it was a really you know that comes from Gus I mean just the environment that he created was just really creatively uninhibiting and and and, and just really free and uh, and in all ways people you know nobody really I don't think it felt like they got crapped on or not listened to or their opinion didn't matter I think everyone felt like like they they were a part of something and and that and that it was fun to come to work every day and and at the end they have something that they're that they're proud of and no one went broke doing it so it was like a really really positive thing <laughs> <laughs>